I'm Bria. I'm Jenna. And welcome to Obsessive by Nature. Chipmunk universe? It's uh, it's quite fun. We got furry fied. Honestly, this is how I edit the podcast anyway, so like it's, yeah, same. This is how I sound, you know, because I'm always taking hits of helium to get that, you know, brain high where you zone up into the upper atmosphere and meet the sun god. Just just all that lack of oxygen that really helps like set things in place, you know. I always record my podcast oxygen deprived. That's how I stay lucid. <clears throat> it, I think it's very helpful, honestly. You know, just to you, you can't be all there. Yeah, I mean, not in this world. <laughs> no, if you're paying too much attention, you just you're too busy screaming to you know have a podcast. Yeah, I I think you know you gotta be at least a little out to lunch, otherwise life isn't fun. Yeah, my last podcast. Ah! I didn't do very well. <laughs> Obsessive by Nature is made possible by our supporters on Patreon. You can sign up at patreon.com slash lifeofbria for as little as $2 Canadian a month, and you can support the pod, see what we're up to, and join the Discord to hang out with me, Bria, all the time, when I'm there. You doing alright? You had a good weekend? Yeah, I had a pretty good weekend. Uh, I met some family, chilled, had a good time. Nice, nice. I did um, mushrooms. I did, did, you know, they're, they're legal. I don't think they can get in trouble. I mean, they're technically not yeah, legal, but they might as well be legal, right? I think there's, uh, I think at this point they're being decriminalized, or there's a huge push to be decriminalized. There's straight up stores selling them on the street. I yeah, guess. You, can, you can get fucking delivery order mushrooms to your fucking door any time of the day. Like, it's, it's great. If that's not legal, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan, honestly. They're just, Wonderful things. Great way to open your, you know, people always joke about opening your third eye, but like it sometimes feels really good. Oh yeah, it opens your eyes up to all kinds of new, you know, teachings and, and knowledge. Knowledge in your body. Yeah. It, it gets you feeling things that like, it, it's not about like seeing funny colors or whatever. It's like for me, it's always a very frankly spiritual experience. And like, it, it, there's something about like feeling these things directly in your body rather than like I don't know, like oh yeah, I could, I could have an augmented reality app or something that shows me funny colors and stuff overlaid on reality, but that's not the same as like directly experiencing it within yourself. Like I think there's honestly something kind of like challenging and scary to the status quo of people being able to have some kind of experience like that for like a couple, honestly, not very many dollars. I, I absolutely agree. I think like I don't know the the fact that it just it opens your mind up to all those new experiences. It like opens your, your neurons to connecting in new and interesting ways. It's a great way. Honestly, it's a great way to deal with certain kinds of trauma because you feel sort of good and suddenly you can make new connections, bypass things that were maybe in your way before, that kind of thing. And like I don't know, it's just such a I feel so creative every time I'm on it. It's it's this interesting like kind of I don't know brain boost, creativity boost, detachment from reality. It's all these things you're describing: boosting your brain, being open to new experiences, getting detached from reality, working through trauma, spending a few bucks. All these things are already encompassed in something else. So we don't need mushrooms. We should just be experiencing ourselves through the the defined and approved of medium of media, TV, the shows. That's how we're supposed to work through these things, right? That's how we're supposed to commune with the other planes. <sighs> Supposedly, I uh, I get so tired of so much of this kind of thing. It's just like a frustration with all of it. Like, uh, I have my one of my pet peeves being the MCU is just like the prime example for me of just like brain dead storytelling at this point. It's just like okay, well we have these characters, people like these characters, let's mash them together in a shitty movie so that we can keep people entertained for another two and a half or two hours ish, and like stop them questioning too much about like how we own seventy percent of the fucking media market in one company like whatever happened to like monopoly like controls nah fuck that Disney gets to own most of what we get to watch you forgot about the CIA propaganda oh yeah I mean like the fucking CIA propaganda military propaganda fucking hoorah go join the marines where you get to fight monsters and, and shit like, now I saw a very socially progressive one of those films though and it had this really great message about how the black panthers were wrong <laughs> 
you know, I hadn't even thought about it like that. That is an ex exceptionally good point. I can't even believe I don't, didn't make that connection. It feels a little obvious now. The film is called Black Panther. Yeah. They wrote the original title, The Black Panthers Were Wrong. <laughs> I, like, I think that was, that was the thing is because I enjoyed that movie partially so much because the villain feels like he has a really valid fucking point. And it's like at the end of the movie, I'm sitting there going like, yeah, okay, maybe just like complete chaos of just handing over a bunch of weapons to allow that is maybe not the best plan, but it's not far off from a good one. Like, hire the dude. He'd be like, hey, be my fucking advisor. Help me get arms to these people so they can rise up in a way that doesn't get them all murdered. Hmm, rise up? That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound friendly. I think we're supposed to learn how to, to talk about our differences and stuff. The teacher said, be good, sit cross-legged, and don't ever question the government. Yeah, just, just recite that, uh, that anthem to the flag every fucking morning. Like, just, that, speaking as somebody who came from a country where I, the government there, quite frankly, sucks, it's way better than the previous one by, like, a million miles, but that doesn't mean it's good, and everyone there just has this sort of attitude of, quite frankly, fuck the government, fuck the idea of this country, like, yes, we're very happy to be working together, but I don't know if I knew very many patriots in the American sense of the word, but, like, that doesn't mean people weren't proud of their country, they weren't proud of, like, their nationality and stuff like that, instead, I don't know. Sounds like you guys need a bunch of movies to show you how great your non-governmental agencies are, right? <laughs> they, they never, they, they do, like, shield the government agency, but, like, they kind of act like these heroes are somehow beyond that, like, like you're working for the U.S., that's a U.S. military agency. You're, you, you, these superheroes are just like vigilantes, basically. They're hired mercenaries. They're, they're not even... Like, they're, they're, like, it's more almost more terrifying that they are government employees or that they're low-key not government employees. Like, neither one's good. Yeah, I mean, wasn't, uh, the, wasn't the MCU Civil War one basically all about that? And I didn't really... I didn't actually watch that one. I didn't really understand which side it ended up on. It sort of seemed to be somewhere in the middle and gave a very non-committal answer. Maybe it's better if... I don't know. And that's where... Well, the thing is, that's the message that I remember from the movie. If it was actually saying something more impactful than that, I sure didn't notice. Because I... I don't know. Those movies are designed to make your brain just check out at the door. I paid for my ticket, I sat down, and I left the building. That's interesting. It's like a kind of hiding in plain sight, where you're kind of talking about these things like government missions around the world and the military fighting, you know, awesome powers beyond our comprehension or whatever. Doing all kinds of things with super technology that they don't tell anybody about. But then, like... Uh, making it completely banal and have a sort of non-moral that even is obviously kind of banal like it's, and you can say oh, it's for children or whatever and so you just kind of turn off and stop thinking about it and you don't you don't really want to investigate any further about like whether or not the, the government or the military is doing good things because you're just like oh no they're good guys right I mean whatever it's like those dumb movies I mean the irony is they even have a story about like a government agency being like overtaken by the bad guys and turning out to have been being run by the bad guys since fucking forever it's like uh, Captain America the yeah. Winter Soldier I think it is it's like weren't we like rooting for those guys in previous movies were we rooting for like Nazis or whatever in previous movies well some of them yes <laughs> is the implication oh, and I'm not worried about it too much though. and the organization they were working for oh no it got turned into a proper government organization oh, the important only people the at the top weren't actually evil but everyone just beneath them was Oh, okay. You know, Nick Fury was, he was all good. That's, you know. that's like it's so interesting where it's like, you take something, it's like, yeah, like maybe there is some bad stuff going on with like Project Paperclip or whatever. Is that the right one? That project, which is the one that's Nazis and which is the one that's UFOs? Oh, I, I have no idea. Oh, it was the one, you know, they brought all the, the, the Nazis over from, you know, Germany into America to be scientists and stuff and live there and, and get involved in like law enforcement and the government. And like, oh. you know, like, don't, don't, don't worry though, though, because we learned already from our movie stories that only the, the bad people, they'll be low down and the good people, they'll rise to the top because their system's so good. So, you know, we don't have to worry about these things because the good guys will win. And I know it seems so silly to talk about these children's movies in such a serious way, but I think that's a low-key the point. You yeah. use children's movies to talk about, it's a serious topic, but it's, an, it's a fantastical topic, and you talk about it in a fantastical, immature way, and then people just think of it as something outlandish and fantasy, and it's like, why worry about it? Like, yeah. nah, that's, that's, you're overblowing that. Oh, you watch too many Marvel movies or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the idea of, like, these government agencies and, and their, their agents just being like, well, we're, don't worry about it, the situation's fine, we're here, we're just gonna, like, tie you up by being borderline superheroes. This is, like, both military propaganda because it's great to recruit more people into these organizations, right? Uh, that's what we all need. And, and like, you know, oh, aren't the military jets and all of these things that they have access to is cool future tech really fucking cool? Don't you want to join up and be a part of it? Don't worry about what they're doing and why they're, like, interfering in all yeah, these because. countries. Like, yeah. They, they'd work with Thor if they could, if Thor were real. Yeah. Which he definitely isn't, we didn't make Thor in a lab. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, at this point, it feels like um, if you've looked at the, the way these actors prepare for the roles, which is like a whole other fucking thing, is like they sort of are made in a way. They all go on human growth hormone and get like a super like personal trainer, dietitian. Yeah, like, like I mean, I was I was hearing that like um, uh, Jason Momoa, um, he he has a, a rule with his dietitian that he will not give up a pint of Guinness every day. That is his like cheat thing for every day. It's the one thing he won't go without. But like as a result, he's eating basically like celery and eggs and like two eggs and two pieces of celery a day kind of thing. Like basically eating fuck all, like, training nearly twenty four hours a day. Like as close as long as he isn't sleeping, he's basically just training to to be in this role. Exactly. So that he can get jacked as shit and look incredible. And then like he has to do prep exercises before he's on the screen because otherwise his abs don't show up enough. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, I mean, I'm sorry. Did these people like? Did, did, like, I'm, I'm, my brain is melting just because I, I know about bodybuilding. I'm an expert. I spent many years in that life. My nickname in the gym used to be Thor, God of Thunder. I was consistently the strongest dude at any gym I went to. Uh, I, I know a little thing about lifting, and I wear some of the scars from some of the training I did. Like, you pick up injuries doing a lot of heavy lifting and hard training, and like all these bodybuilders, like Ronnie Coleman, and I mean, like Ronnie Coleman's the, the one that stands out the most to me because he's so thoroughly fucked. Like his body is fucked. Like he still works out. He still loves it. Uh, he's still a pretty fit dude considering all things, but like he has to use crutches to walk around. He's in conscious, constant pain. His back is in like it's got permanent metal pieces put into it, yeah. and it's partially because of all the heavy lifting he did. But um, all, uh, he has, I believe, other problems like heart issues and things from the drugs that he took: human growth hormone, uh, testosterone, I guess. There's all kinds of advanced steroids, right? Yeah. Deca, whatever. But like, uh, all these guys, uh, other bodybuilders besides him, if they don't develop the joint and bone issues from lifting too heavy, they always develop these heart issues and metabolism issues, and they just they go bald. They they look weird. Their veins are all weird looking. You get yeah. your body gets messed up taking all these drugs and doing all this crazy extreme stuff that like like we're kind of selling this idea of fitness through films and media and these actors are doing it to become this heroic physique but it's like this totally destructive thing that would destroy your physique and destroy your body's vitality yeah i mean and like i've even seen some of the um actors and some of the pieces that i've seen about this like talk about it just be like yeah i am i am effectively sacrificing my old age comfort in order to make these roles into something special and it's like if you think about all this effort all these actors that are just fucking their bodies over going putting themselves through hell for mediocre to shitty children's movies that's just depressing like that that's its own form of like just i don't know beating your workhorse like for what so that it carries the hay up the, the road a little quicker it doesn't seem worth it you know like I, I can understand if they were putting that effort into a role it was like really important and defining and like groundbreaking on some level but like the mcu is just <laughs> yeah yeah marvel i mean i used to like marvel comics i loved an x-men cartoon in the 90s x-men spider or not x-men 90s spider-man uh, 60s Spider-Man, which was, like, made out of some, like, what is this, uh, Rocket Robin Hood or something, or... Oh. Anyways, you know, I like Marvel, and then, you know, Disney bought them. Yep. Disney, they just, they're doing all that stuff, they're, they own everything, they cancel all those gay shows, yep. they make gay people buy their stuff by pretending there's gay people in it, but that they edit out in China, because they just put them in for, like, a scene. I mean, uh, Disney has a long-standing history of fucking over queer people in general. Like, it used to be one of the biggest queer employers in, in the States, in, in some ways. A lot of their art department were out gay people... But hidden out gay people, if that makes any sense. They couldn't... Like, they couldn't be too public about it, basically. Um, and because Disney was just like, nah, fuck you, you have to stay in the closet and carry on drawing our art for us. Just, like, make this shit for us. You know? Uh -huh. And they refused to put any gay representation in anything until, like, what, the early, like, late 2000s? I mean, that sure explains all the uncomfortable body swap episodes in all these uh, different shows. There's, like, so... Every time on the last night, like, Rescue Rangers, uh, you know, Gadget, swapping heads with, what was it, Dale, I think? Yeah. Like, oh, they all swapped heads, that's right, but that was in there. There's, there's know, Blue. Gooby-Doo movies were Disney, but... Mm, Hanna-Barbera. But yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Shaggy or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, the fun mirror. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know at least a few people to whom that scene gives them some interesting feels. But Disney is honestly rife with a lot of this stuff. It makes me wonder, like, how many, like, queer people were, like, working there, and they, but they also couldn't, like, be really out about it. So it's like, well, I'm putting that in. Okay. Yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> Uh, more than Disney will ever admit. Yeah, they probably bury that stuff. Yeah, uh, much like they bury their hoard of porn. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, they all got that, right? Well, because the idea is anything that gets created with their characters um, within the building and, like, other sources that they, like, I think, um, DMCA and what have you, they basically get possession of a bunch of this stuff. So, as a result, they have this huge stockpile of porn about their characters that either their artists, whilst in the building or at home or what have you, drew, or they've collected it from all these, like, um, copyright strikes. Oh, my God. So, yeah, Disney is just sitting on this mountain of porn of their characters. Huh. <laughs> it must be... They've got a theory that all this uh, AI stuff, you know, AI art, it's not allowed to make porn, right? But that's just cover, because they actually are building a secret porn AI. Well, I'm pretty sure I've seen, because, like, some of it, um, some of the algorithms definitely have some, like, open source ability. You can, like, create your own, spin up some of these things. Um, I'm pretty sure they don't have blocks, because I've definitely seen some AI porn. Yeah. Like, it's out there. It definitely exists. I mean, one of my favorite, like, weird trends of the AI thing is just people, like, taking pictures of Mickey Mouse with a fire, like, with a M16 and covered in blood. Like, just really fucking over these companies, um, like, property rights. Just use them at every turn, because it, it becomes this interesting thing of, like, okay, well, if we can recreate the art from your cartoons and have these characters doing whatever the fuck we want, um, with AI art and say it's ours, then, you know, copyright doesn't work on it. Like, because these companies don't give up access to their characters, their intellectual property. So, hopefully, if enough of that happens, it might help stem the tide of some of this AI art bullshit. But, you know... I also know that they'll probably come up with a nice happy rule that suits the big companies and fucks over every small artist ever. Yeah, I don't trust anything that they, they say they're introducing. It's always a scam. Every new thing they, they introduce, they'll say it's for you, but it's actually for them in some way. Yeah. You, can't, uh, you can't trust anything. And when you have like a big company like Disney that holds such a massive share of things, they can just push everyone around and get whatever they want. It's, it's terrifying, honestly, how much of a share they own. And frankly, I don't really want to support Disney or Marvel in any way if I can possibly avoid it. Um, yeah. So, anyway, let's talk about Andor. <laughs> yeah. I watched it. You wanted me to watch it for a while because, like, you know, for, for getting everything straight, I liked Star Wars when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then the prequels came out, and I really tried to like them. I really I remember thinking when I was like a silly little 13 year old kid, and episode one was going to come out, you know, soon, I was like, oh, my favorite Star Wars movie is Return of the Jedi because it has all the cool explosions and the big Darth Vader fight and, you know, stuff that a little 13 year old kid would think is cool. Mm-hmm. But I think probably my favorite one when it, is going to be Phantom Menace when it comes out because that'll be the newest one. So it'll be the best, right? <laughs> and, uh,. No, it wasn't, and, you know, I think everybody went through a bit of a denial of, like, yeah, it's pretty good, huh? It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, you're like, that wasn't as good as the other Star Wars movies. I don't remember them being bad like that. Uh, and then, you know, Attack of the Clones was just even worse, and then Revenge of the Sith, I uh, just, I couldn't even finish it. I, I just think I was watching it for, like, an essay I was writing, because I was one of those freaking kids in high, uh, university, mm-hmm. and then I couldn't even get through it at first. I had to watch it in a couple goes, so it was that bad. And so, I haven't cared about Star Wars since, and I didn't even watch, like, any of the new ones. I watched, like, one episode of The Mandalorian, I liked it, but I don't, I don't watch shows. Generally, I don't watch shows. I don't. I don't have time for that. I don't. I don't really think it, I want to give them my money. I don't really want my time taken up by their vision. Like, oh, you got to have millions of dollars. Lucky you. You get to make whatever you want. I'm more interested in making my stuff because I'm obsessive and bitter. But you know, you really recommended Andor. You, yeah. you, you were talking about all the things that you thought were good about. It. I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So we, we started watching it. And normally, when I watch something, I only watch one episode a week. It, yeah. It's kind of fun that way. Mm-hmm. It's like you get to look forward to it and you can savor it. And like, come on, there's like a bajillion shows out there. If you want to watch stuff, you want to watch something for twelve hours straight. You can watch twelve hours straight of different things. You don't have to binge it. Yeah. I don't. I generally don't think binging is a good way to consume things. But I watched this one, we watched as many as we could back to back in any given night we watched it. Like, it was, we got through it pretty quickly, and it was pretty good. Let's see what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've spoken about it on the pod uh, from my side, about, like, my background around Star Wars, because when I came, like, when I was, jeez, when did the, the, the Phantom Menace come out? It must have been, like, 2001, I think? 2000? Around then? I was, like, 10, 11 years old at the time, so I was the perfect audience for that movie. So I came out of it going, like, oh, I really love this. There were some weird parts, but I really love this. This is great, and I got super obsessed with Star Wars. And then I started to get older, and the second, uh, the prequel movies came out, and I was like, well, I enjoyed that, but it was sort of bad, and I don't really know how to put my finger on why, and watching the older movies, they were sort of better than these, but I don't know how to articulate that yet. And then the third movie came out, and I was like, I was really disappointed with that, that was weird. Um, as a result, like, I, I have a slightly different perspective on the, the prequel movies, because I feel like there's a there's a really interesting story tucked in there, and a really expensive and wonderful universe, and it's being done real dirty by some awful directing and some awful writing. Yeah. <laughs> like, and the worst part is, like, looking at those actors, 
they're really good in other roles. <laughs> like, it killed um, Hayden Christensen's career, I think, uh, if I'm getting his name right. Yes, yeah, that's a guy. Um, like, it absolutely killed his acting career, from what I gather. Like, um, the other two, who's the Natalie Portman, for instance, you see her in anything else, she's fucking excellent. She's such a good actress. And then, that. I'm a senator. <laughs> breaking my heart. Like, also, fucking, oh my god, she dies of a broken heart. I, I nearly threw a drink at this rate. <laughs> like, uh. No! <laughs> yeah, that, all of that just left me with a very sour taste in my mouth. But it is, like, there's the kernels of an interesting story there, because it's like, it makes all these, like, bits of sense. Anyway, I'm, I'm Oh, I obsessive. mean, there's nothing wrong with, like, kind of going on about it. There's a lot there, and, like, I I think I see a lot of, like, re- maybe revisionism or, you know, defending the prequels over the years of, like, talking about, like, well, it is George Lucas's vision. Like, there's something there, I guess, right? That, like, I'm... <laughs> I'm not a strong one to hold on to any one person's vision. I think the better option is for the best version of it to win out. And this is very much in the, you know, utopian sense of things, like if everyone involved is getting paid and they're all happily compensated for what they're creating so that nobody has to worry about a fucking roof over their head, then, as far as I'm concerned, let the best version of whatever story it is win. Like, let it be... One of my favourite things is this SCP uh, wiki thing where millions of people are collaborating on this overarching set of stories and like there's some degree of like choice over what things get into it but it's a community choice it's the community working together to decide what gets to be published and what doesn't on the website so there's some there's some real gems in there it's really beautiful i think a lot of people that know of it have like a list of their top scps because it's just i don't know that creative collaborative like working together which is why i'm in this like weird thing where it's like yeah i don't really care that it was george lucas's vision i think it was i think there's a beautiful story wrapped up in there but i think the way he executed it didn't, didn't work. Yeah, it, it sucked. It was bad writing and terrible acting as a result of terrible directing. Yeah. And then the, the production was like, I mean, they did build some miniatures. They did build some fun things, but it's mostly just the CG crap everywhere. Built way more miniatures than I think a lot of people have realized. Yeah, but um, I think they were undercut by like a lot of digital processing and it just all ended up looking like it was CG, even yeah. though they built a fun little miniature. I think George, because something that maybe not a lot of people necessarily know is that uh, LucasArts spearheaded a lot of early um, 3D animation work in the in the world. Like, they built one of the earliest studios involved in 3D animation. He was a big pioneer on, on that. So LucasArts games were, like, big for a long time. Yeah. I mean, this is the interesting thing. Is, like, I feel like George Lucas was trying to, and, and from what I've heard about since he, he left the project, as far as he's concerned, he didn't do a great job with the prequels. At least, as I understand it, he didn't do a great job with the prequels as he sees it. And um, ended up taking the money from selling it and being, just, like, making his own weird movies, like, his own weird creative projects so that he doesn't really release to anyone. He just shows to his friends and family. Like, that's that sounds like a dream, honestly. Right? Like, I think, honestly, he was an artist to some degree that just people, by the time of the prequels, were just not saying no to him. Like, a lot of people have said, like, he'd come in with stupid ideas. And, like, also, I don't think he's a great boss. I think, you know, I, I gather there's some, like, some stuff there, but it wasn't, like, as far as I know, he's not a bad person. Like, he hasn't done anything worthy of, like, being cancelled in inverted commas, but, like... Well, someone like that has got to be a weirdo. He's got to be isolated yeah. from other people. If he wasn't already a weirdo, getting rich definitely made him into a weirdo. Yeah. And he's got to be, like, so detached from reality like every other super wealthy person that, like, you can't have a normal human interaction with him and you can't have, a, like, an actual working relationship with him. I gather that's what he's tried to change in his later life is just be more personally eccentric if that makes sense so he's like yeah i'm making my own art for my own sake and nobody really gets to have a say in it because it's my art but i'm making it as my art not as something to share a product to sell toys yeah um which i don't know i, I have a i have a great deal of respect for i think that's cool yeah um and like i, I it's weird because like years ago i would have had some kind of attachment to star wars and been like mad about the prequels but now i have like no attachment to star wars so it's just like yeah I don't know, most star wars kind of sucks really and who cares like I, watch the old movies. I, I, I think I, in some ways I still have a great attachment to Star Wars. I have a sort of love for the universe. But I always feel like I'm done dirty by everything that gets produced. <laughs> Which is why Andor was such a sort of like, I don't know, light in the dark for me. Well, it's so not Star Wars. Like, it, that's, that's part of what I loved about it. Is it's Star Wars, not Star Wars. <laughs> it's barely Star Wars. Like, um, you know, we'll get into the plot and stuff in a bit if anyone's not familiar with it. I, I do recommend you should probably watch it. To be yeah. I don't, I mean, oh, spoilers or whatever. Like, I think it's still enjoyable even if you spoil it. Uh, so. I think so, but, you know, for anybody concerned about it, I enjoyed some of the twists and turns that came about of it. So, you know, pause and watch it and come back if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't normally say that, but maybe you should. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it was barely Star Wars. I don't think a Stormtrooper shows up until, like, episode 7, like, over halfway through the 12-episode series. Like, yeah. it doesn't have, there's no John Williams score, there's no text crawl, there's no Jedis. 
there's like I think there's a little bit of an occasional score here and there, but as opposed to the and, and this is something that I found quite interesting in the, the recent Kirkwood Star Wars stuff, is like the stuff that I find the worst is the stuff that goes really hard on the space opera meets uh, space western vibe. Um, with the possible exception of The Mandalorian. I've sort of enjoyed The Mandalorian, but that goes super heavy into the space western side and less into the space opera side. It's just sort of very cheesy and hammy and some of it I quite like. But Andor goes in a completely different direction with it. Like, yeah. Well, it's got... I mean, I'd, I'd say it goes more space opera than western, certainly. Yeah. If you're going to use that political spectrum. But it still has, like, these sort of rustic, gritty elements to it that are like a space western. Like, it's, it's dirty and grimy. We see working people a lot. There's actually fewer adventurers and rogues than there are, like, normal people in it. That's why it, it doesn't feel like a, a space western to me. Because yeah. westerns to me always feel, like, devoid from reality. Because it's like, well, cowboys... For, you know, I was watching something the other night about... I think it was Drunk History, actually. Um, where they were talking about um, the fact that, like, as far as we know, there are, like, maybe five incidences of people standing out in the street and having a shoot-off in the entirety of, of like, the Wild West. Yeah. Like, it just didn't happen. Because who the fuck does that? They're, like, a fictional historical trope. Yeah. Or mostly fictional. It, it, which goes into, like, this sort of mostly fictional uh, trope in the American psyche of, like, the independent loner making it in the wilderness, you know, yeah. or, or being off on his own shooting people. Like, that's, uh, generally speaking, not how people live. Yeah. I mean, like, even if you look at the, the like, you know, you watch these Western movies, and it's, it, the characters are so larger than life in these, honestly, in growing up with somebody who sort of missed those movies being a staple as much, like... I don't know, to me they're really goofy. In like a fun way if you look at it as a, as, as that, but they're seriously goofy. You have these like absurd characters that would never really exist in reality. Having these absurd fights and overblown arguments and shooting up an entire town that's like three houses big. It's like, it just, I don't know, it has such a... <laughs> I'm, as a fan of kung fu movies, I'm actually a really big fan of westerns. I, I love the, the cheesy elements, because westerns are mostly older. Yeah. And, and even the newer ones, like, they're the sort of thing that you can do mostly with practical effects. And so, like, they often have a very delightful kind of production. Mm -hmm. And then they've got this, this sort of rough and tumble violence and these goofy characters and sort of hammy acting. And, like, they're fun. Westerns are fun. Actually, um, I really recommend this more modern Western called Old Henry. Okay. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil that at all, honestly. You mm -hmm. should watch Old Henry completely blind and just know that it's very different from your usual Western and it is absolutely excellent and wonderful. Okay. So just throw that there. But, yeah, like, um, speaking of, uh, Star Wars is like a Western. I, I like like all these things that I just mentioned: practical effects, hammy yeah. acting, kind of goofy plots, and then uh, violence. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that make Star Wars good most of the time. But Andor has very few. It's got some decent practical effects. It's got honestly some delightful practical effects, I think. But it it doesn't really have hammy acting for the most part, and yeah. it doesn't have like a too outrageous of a story. I'd say if you, as long as you get past the idea of a galactic empire and a rebellion against a galactic empire. Yeah. And then oh, it has violence, but not even that much violence. I think also you know where where the other movies treat the the rebellion and the galactic empire as sort of these set pieces almost they're like you know part of the just part of the furniture in the place Andor has this feel of like you see how these kinds of movements can grow how this kind of thing can like build up it feels believable to me in a way that like you know I could see something like that working on a, a planet scale like kind of uprising rebellion type thing it makes sense how the pieces move together in Andor whereas in a lot of the other Star Wars media it sort of doesn't yeah well they don't really think about it they're not thinking about the moving parts they just want the broad strokes it's the idea of the Empire the idea of the rebellion and we're really focused on the characters like Luke and Han and Leia and their, their little adventures and everything else Honestly, part of what makes it delightful, I think, is it's these broad strokes. And you have this, like, oh, wow, there's this adventure thing going on. And I'm kind of curious to know how it works, but nobody ever has to explain it if they know what they're doing. Yeah. And that makes it more fun. I think when you over-explain most things, you kind of ruin the magic. Like, midi-chlorians is not a good move. Yeah. Going too much into Darth Vader's backstory, honestly, I don't think is a good move. I don't want to know certain things because it'll ruin the mystery. And then it will, it's your idea that will always be better than whatever it is, no matter how good it is. So anything you can leave to your imagination, you probably should. That's that's what I find so interesting for me about Andor is that I don't think it does leave a lot to the imagination. You explained it, it well. It, it looks at like um, a lot of the the little pieces that add up to something big. Like you know, it shows how like how rebels could get hold of technology, how they could get score hits in ways without it being something that is this whole. Because like the, the Empire is just sort of 
when it gets down to the microcosm level, the empire is really inefficient at what it's doing. It doesn't really, like, you can't run a galaxy-sized fucking empire and make sure that every single town on every single planet is, like, following the rules as you've got it. You've got to delegate down to this ridiculous level, at which there's, there's so much bureaucratic noise and incompetence and all these kinds of things that, like, the broad strokes never really deals with, because you're dealing with, like, huge scale battles between these massive numbers of ships, whereas Andor is like, yeah, but what about the guy that works, like, down the place cutting ships apart? Like, what about his story? Like, how does he go from that to being part of the rebellion? Yeah. It, it, there's value in that, yeah, I think Andor did a good job of trying to get into these nitty-gritty details of how things would work or not work, and, and then, like, how people would maybe get radicalized or become, you know, in contact with who they need to meet, and, and just, like, how these things would play out, like, the actions that you would have to take in order to, to make a galaxy rebel against a, a terrible government that's, you know, controlling the whole thing. Yeah. Like, I, uh, I think it's such a fascinating show in how well it's done that, because, yeah, it's not a direction that I think Star Wars has ever really gone in. Not competently. Yeah. Is, is this based on anything? Do you know if Andor, the TV series, is based on anything else in Star Wars? I don't... I don't know, really. Like, I know it's, uh, the, the character is one that appears in um, the interim movie between the yeah. the prequels and the, um, the original trilogy, but... Was that Rogue One or whatever? Yeah, Rogue One, um, which is one of my favorite Star Wars movies. I didn't I actually see that one. Pretty well, but it has... It's not... You know, it's still not great. But it did bring out this idea of some really interesting characters, and, like, a lot of characters have to make some pretty serious sacrifices, which is something that Star Wars hadn't really tackled that much before that. Like, arguably, like, Luke losing his hand very much, but it was very much like, okay, but he's got a new one now. Yeah. was like, Rogue One is, like, all of the people towards the end die. Like, you know, I'd say spoilers, but, like, it was spoiled in the fact that you know who these people are. Like, you know what the story is about. They all die. Yeah, if you've seen other Star Wars, you already know how this Star Wars movie ends. Yeah. Um, and so, like, it, it, it had some interesting character development, some interesting character moments, things like that that I think worked quite well. But as far as I know, Andor is sort of its own thing. Although it's using that character, it's still just its own sort of thing. I know, like, the extended universe is wild. There's uh, a lot there. Yeah, and most of it these days is no longer canon, um, in the, the official canon. But... Also, some of it was goofy as hell. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd say most of it wasn't great. Uh, there's the odd thing that I remember consuming that, uh, you know, I, most of the things I'd say I consumed probably weren't very good. But I've got, like, you know, on my bookshelf here, I've got this, like, Boba Fett comic, because I really like Boba Fett when I was a kid. And, you know, it's not great, but it's not terrible. It's yeah. fun. Uh, I still have it. It's, it's kind of precious to me. I think that's one of the things that I sort of miss about the, the Expanded Universe, was, like, it's it's just sort of fun. Like, there's a lot of stuff that is all kind of creatively mashed together that people have done. And I, I read some stories from it. Um, I had some books from it that I, I honestly kind of enjoyed. This is, like, Han Solo's backstory, for instance, was quite interesting in some of the books. Um, yeah, I think there's one where he ends up, like, mining some fucking, like, space drug. Um, huh? And that's how he meets Chewbacca and all of that. I don't know. It's a, it's a whole it's a whole thing. But it was, it was delightful. It was a little cheesy. It was a little weird. It was, you know, not the best production, but it was fun. It sounds like the opposite of, I think we talked about it in a previous pod, um, the, uh, what DC's doing yeah. with their, their universe and why everything's the same. Oh, God, yeah. That's, that's not great. Flattening it all out is going to make it boring. I'd rather have a big, wacky Star Wars expanded universe with a bunch of different artists' goofy takes on obscure stuff. Yeah, me too. Like, part of what I think is so beautiful about Andor is the fact that it does something so different in that space. It's not trying to be, like, a, a typical space western or space opera. Like, yes, there is those space opera layers, but it's like, like I say, it's dealing with, like, a much smaller scale while affecting a bigger scale, if that makes sense. Um... Yeah, we're, I don't know, like, seeing the whole DC idea of just, like, mashing it all into the same art style. It's just like, well, if you want to keep telling exactly the same stories, exactly the same way, it's just, it's, put it like this, it's like kids going to see, uh, Shakespeare. Most kids these days don't want to see Shakespeare plays. I know, I fucking didn't when I was in high school, like, seem boring as shit. And, like, seeing a different company do the same Shakespeare plays can be, sometimes, kind of painful. Um, there's usually, like, one or two really, really good versions of it, and then it's like, okay, well, you know, 
it's great practice. There's some beauty to be had in how every how every group interprets the story. But it, the thing that makes it interesting isn't that it's Shakespeare necessarily. It's that the different groups have their own take on it. Yeah, if it was like you watched it and it was like, oh, well, they didn't do it right. This is the right way to do Shakespeare. And I, I saw it one time and this other group did it the better, correct way. And this is not good by virtue of being different from that. Like, that's not a very interesting, fun way to engage with anything. Like, yeah. we're like, oh, wow, they did it completely differently. They changed the rules of how the story works. They changed these characters. Oh, they, they depicted this. Like, you know, I, I saw Midsummer Night's Dream in the summer. Mm -hmm. Midsummer, roughly. And, you know, they, they kind of depicted it in like this sort of like turn of the century maybe like uh somewhere between world war one and the napoleonic war kind of time period and it was like so there's like and this is like i think it's time about i don't know what general it was in athens or something like it's like yeah. you know not a, a place that you typically would think of this i mean certainly it was written in elizabethan times but usually if they depict it it's gonna be like guys with swords guys with armor and like they had some of that but it was like you know generals with their hats and lapels and kind of was a bit of a steampunk aesthetic to a lot of stuff and it was like okay great neat sure yeah. okay and they had a whole take on oberon and the fairies with how they did the costumes so they're like tree folk walking around on stilts and it's like sure okay it's a different, different thing. You didn't just make it fairies with little wings or whatever, because we all know what a fairy is, right? There's only one way a fairy can look. Like, it's like Tinkerbell from Disney. That's the way fairies are. Well, so, um, I was just thinking, like, that That reminds me of uh, watching these Kurosawa films that I've been watching recently, and, like, he's done a couple of, like, he did a couple of Shakespearean plays, but yep. set in... Yeah, Japan. Blood. It's so good. Man. It's so interesting. Like, I, it's such a great way to look at them in a completely different light, and it's like, yeah, it's not saying the exact same lines, but it's, it, ha it carries the same gist. It carries the same, like, what it, what is trying to be said. And I'm like, in high school, for my uh, like provincial exams, it's like a certain you know grade twelve final grade you gotta do like they're not just final exams, it's the provincial exam. It's, it's like everyone takes the same exam. They're notoriously difficult, supposedly. And I had I was taking English literature, and you had to write an essay on the provincial exam about like one of three Shakespeare plays. And like in English literature, we'd like we'd read like The Tempest, which is one of the options. We'd read um, Macbeth, and then there was also an option King Lear, which we didn't read. But I'd seen the Kurosawa version of King Lear Ran. I'd also seen Throne of Blood, the Kurosawa version of, of Macbeth. But I went with uh, Ran because I saw it more recently, and it kind of struck me a little more. And so I wrote my essay on the Kurosawa film. Based. I didn't say that. Yeah. I just used the word, the names of all the characters from the original play. I got, I don't know, 98% on that exam. Like, nice. yeah. like you know, it, they're good films. They're good representations, despite being completely different. Yeah. Like, um, I was going to say another example that I love, which, I mean, and that's, that's the thing, is like, these examples are so good because they took what the original story was, and they made something completely new with it, using new styles, new characters, new, just, like, a whole new vibe. And here they're massaged it to fit their vision of what it was, rather than it just being another high school, like, yeah, you know, if everyone was doing exactly the same play with exactly the same directions with exactly the same character outfits, like, you'd get bored out of your skull. I, I don't think somehow that, uh, all these Disney shows and then Disney uh, Star Wars things would have any kind of traction if it was just George Lucas going around going, no, we have to do it like this, this is how I want it to be. <laughs> so I don't think it, Star Wars would be landing as well. No, I don't think it would, honestly. But like, for the most part though, with Star Wars and Disney, like they've got their idea about how they want it to be. And of course, like, the show's done so well, uh, it's such a success, at least like in terms like artistically, I don't know if it's got critical success or audience success. It seems to have pretty solid audience success. So the big fear, of course, is that they'll do like what they did with Mandalorian and be like, the executives will take notice of something that did so well. And they'll be like, oh, we gotta get Luke Skywalker in there, we gotta get Darth Vader, we gotta get all the stuff they recognize so that people will like it more, right? Because people really liked it. So it must be that they'd like it more if it had more Star Wars in it. I'd, I'd heard something in, or, or seen something in an interview that he gave that it was more under his control, but I don't know. Money's the one that's in control. Yep. If there's enough money on the line... The accountants are the ones that decide what uh, what goes forward and what doesn't. But, uh, yeah, they got a different take. They're a different Shakespeare company doing Star Wars. But it's not such a huge departure. It's not like New Trek, where they just completely changed what Star Trek is altogether. Which I'm not going to comment on because I haven't watched any of these things. They're... I... I'll make a slight comment, which is that I struggled to watch Discovery because it, um, it was like, oh, we're going way into the... We're going into, like, the past, but somehow the technology is going to be more advanced, and then we're going to write a technology that's... That we're going to have to find a way to write out, which feels very... Oh, yeah, like the spore drive or whatever? They can yeah. instantly transport around the galaxy? And then, of course, you know, none of the future seasons... Uh, like, none of the series that take place in the future ever mention this stuff. Like, which will I mean? Of yeah. course, like, that's the danger of writing a prequel. 
Is yeah. you can't add too much new information, otherwise your sequel's not gonna make any sense. Yeah, it's I, uh, I it bothered me that and the fact that like I think it was like mid season a, a moment where it's like two characters are discussing the possibilities of the spore drive. It's like oh we could end up in an alternative dimensions and, and explore some of that stuff. I was like okay well you know we're gonna take you back two minutes later in the episode not even like next scene. It's like oh we've just done our jump and everything's wrong somehow. It looks exactly the same but somehow something's different. And it's like oh no what's happened? Oh you've ended up in a different dimension. And they're like oh we've ended up in a different dimension. It's like yeah okay cool um great foreshadowing there. Yeah. Sure. Just the scene right before. <laughs> yeah. That now, you don't want the bad thing to happen to you. Oh no, the bad thing is happening! Yeah, like, just the worst writing. Oh, the dialogue, you little bit of dialogue I heard. It's like, wow, this sounds really obnoxious. This just does not seem... It also didn't help that they, like, fucking iced uh, or fridged one of the fucking early... Early in the first season, they fridged the gay scientist's uh, the, the gay doctor on, on board the ship that was, like, um, I can't remember if they're married or they were just dating, but him and the one scientist that runs the spore drive or what have you. But, like, yeah, they fridged him, and then they brought him back through some nebulous means later in the season. But, like... I don't know, it didn't sit well with me. Like, they're doing the queer baiting, they just draw yeah. in to get you there, and then they take it away because they don't want to alienate people. And then it seems they brought it back because there was a lot of people upset about it, as, as best I can gather, but I, you know, I don't, I can't speak to the, the running of the show, just that I didn't have a good time. And everything I've seen about, like, some of the other shows is it's just, it's Star Trek drama, which I, I guess I'm glad gets to exist, but I'm not so sold on. I will say the Lower Decks is a load of fun. See, I saw the first episode, I didn't like it. I didn't laugh even once. Oh, okay. I know, I know, I, I, maybe I'm just joyless, you know, I don't like anything. Uh, but, like, I don't know, I... <laughs> I have a hard time with a lot of new stuff, just like the way humor is done, it just, eh, I don't know, I don't think it's funny. I, I mean, I don't think you're joyless, I've seen you enjoy a number of things, but that doesn't mean you have to find the same things funny. I don't know, I feel like such a humbug, I don't want, any, I don't want shows, they don't do things, I'm like, oh, that's a scam. They're like, oh, here's a, here's a new thing that I'm excited, like, oh, that's gonna be, the government's just spying on you. That's a corporation just wants to rope you into becoming dependent on them so they can fleece you for more money. You know, like, <laughs> oh no, I'm not updating my software because I don't want them, you know, changing it because it, it works fine now. It, yeah. It's just like, you know, everything, I'm just such a humbug. But the thing is, I'm always right, too, or at least a little bit right. <laughs> I feel like all my fears about social media were confirmed. Yeah, I mean, this is the difficulty is, like, you're not wrong about a lot of things in that regard. Like, social media is just fucking terrible. Um, it, where it's gone has just... It, it is actively rotting people's brains because there's more profit in that. Uh, crypto? Yeah. Not in crypto? Oh, crypto turned out to be the same thing that I thought it was. Now, the AI art? Oh, what's this? Some reading stories about AI art ruining people's jobs. It doesn't take their job. It just makes it so now they have to do AI prompts for a living and expected to produce more work faster for the same amount of money while no longer doing the thing that was the reason they got into the job in the first place. Yep. So, oh, who predicted that? Oh, it was Bria. Bria predicted that happening. Not that I'm like a lone genius in picking a lot of people predicted that sort of thing, but I don't think I'm unjustified in being a humbug most of the time, but I recognize I'm a humbug. I don't, I don't like the fun Star Trek show that literally everyone else I know likes. <laughs> and I, 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 don't, I don't know, I, you know about new Star Wars. I didn't watch new Star Wars. I watched this one. This is special, um, which I feel like I should probably get back to the topic at hand, which is that they changed it, but I guess clearly sometimes changing things doesn't work. Like, they could have maybe made this too serious. Do you think it would be impossible to make a version of Andor where they changed the rules of Star Wars too much, you know? Like, where they made it kind of too grimdark or something? Yeah, I mean, I, this is the thing is, I think like, there could have been a version of Andor that would have been significantly worse. In fact, the odds of it being as good as it is feel strangely too long. But at the same time, I think part of what makes it work is the fact that, like, they were given a lot of creative control to make their vision, like, come through. And I think, like, if you're given the opportunity to make your vision come through, but you have people that can help, I don't know, knock the edges off. Like, sand the, sand the edges down so that it's not quite so peculiar in places. I think that is, that is part of what happened with the prequel movies with George Lucas. It's just, like, there was nobody, because his ex-wife was editing the original, <laughs> and, like, um, you know, had a lot of oversight of what could and couldn't go in, and people were like, no, that's a bad idea. And George had to listen for the first couple of movies. Um, and that's why, like, for instance, the Ewoks appear in the third movie, which a lot of people at the time thought was ridiculous. It's because people couldn't say no to George. It was already starting at that point. By the time of the prequels, nobody could say no to, no to George. So he just put whatever weird shit that he wanted in there. And he did whatever weird shit that suited him in the moment. And everyone was like, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. Um, and that's how we got George our bags. Uh, can I be honest? Yeah? I like the Ewoks. <laughs> I think they're fun. <laughs> that's fair. I mean, I, especially in context with, like, the prequel movies, the Ewoks are 
they're fine. <laughs> they're like, I get it, they're little babies or whatever, they kill stormtroopers somehow, but they're fun little bears, they're actual costumes, they're other little people in there, Warwick Davis playing the Wicket, yeah. the Wicket or Widget? It's Wicket. I don't, well, I don't think you ever actually see their names in the movie. No, they, Wicket's a character, people know that name. Do they? Oh. Yeah. Anyway, well, he's like the one that becomes friends with Leia. Oh. But, yeah, but I'm okay yeah. with fun little bears that kill stormtroopers, I think they're funny. And I, I just like that they're a real puppet, or not a, I, mean, I say puppet, even though it's a human being in a suit, but like, yeah. it's a human hand and a puppet, so it's, I think it's okay to refer to a funny little bear as a puppet. Because it's just, you know what I mean. It's, okay. it's, how many aliens do we think of as being puppets in these shots of a lot of these shows? It's like, that's a person in a mask, that's a person in makeup. Like, yeah, I, like, I, I would call Chewbacca a puppet the same way. Like, Chewbacca's just a dude in a very strange furry suit. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, it's a form of puppetry, I, I would say. So, I guess our bodies, our physical meat bodies, are actually puppets that are being operated by our nervous systems. I mean, pretty much. You know, I, <laughs> we get into, like, the cosmic <laughs> sense of all that. But, yeah, oh, so we're just like puppets of, like, the cosmos. Like, matter, like, arranged itself into more complex forms so that it could express itself and know itself. Whoa! Well, the point is, is everything's a puppet, if you try hard enough. Yeah. And... I don't know what the point of talking about the puppets was. It's because I liked the Ewoks. Oh. And the Ewoks came because of people couldn't say no to George. Yeah. And that came because we were talking about people not a changing Trek or changing Star Wars. So if you change it too much, it might wreck it. Like it kind of wrecked New Trek. Yeah, I, I think, like, I, I can't speak to New Trek enough. I, like, after seeing what I had of most of the, the bits and bobs um, that exist at the moment, I, I just kind of stopped engaging with most of it. I, I really like the change that is lower decks from it. It feels fun in a way that like plays off the plays off what existed before. It's more of a like joke sort of non-canon as best I can tell series. It's, it's a lot of fun. I think that's a great formula of change that really worked. I think some of the drama stuff doesn't really make sense with Star Trek because it it starts getting into the territory around um, Star Wars, and I think that's where it gets a little muddy because it, it sometimes it feels like they're trying to do Star Wars or Firefly in Star Trek where it doesn't really make too much sense unless it's done extremely well. And I found that, you know, I wanted to like Discovery, and I couldn't because it was just... That writing was brutal. And, like, all the, oh, we've got this fancy new tech compared to the old tech, just, it didn't, it felt very anachronistic in a way that didn't make sense, and, like, writing themselves into a fucking hole with their teleport drive. Things like that just felt like it was so sloppily executed. I wouldn't have minded that story later on in the, in the Star Trek canon, where they had, if they had more freedom to, like, really roam with it, do something that was a bit more interesting with it. But, like, where they chose to throw it just felt so badly done that it bothered me. And that's, that's my frustration. It's like, do something interesting new with a, a, like, a media type, but do it in a way that works. Well, I mean, first of all, what I would say is, don't, don't make more Star Trek. I don't know if they need to make more Star Trek. Or Star Wars, you should make new things. That's my, I'm a proponent of making new things. I agree. But we all know that's not going to happen. So, if you are going to make more Star Trek, maybe what they should do is actually make a Star Trek series that's in the future. It's a future Trek, and then you make that concurrently with another series that takes place in, say, the present of Star Trek. Yeah. And then that way, you don't write yourself into a hole. Each one feeds off the other, and events that are happening in the future could be foreshadowed in the past, and events that happen in the past could then follow up in the future. Yeah. And then you, you don't have a problem there. I I mean, interestingly enough, in some ways, uh, I gather that's how DS9 and uh, TNG like yeah. came together a little bit. There was stuff that came from... Um, TNG that affected DS9, and then there was stuff in DS9 that was affecting TNG because it was like the, the kind of like back and forth a little bit towards the later end of the yeah. The show. Well, they were trying to get more into that political stuff. They were trying to do the Dominion and the the uh, they, not the Jem'Hadar. They worked for the Dominion, the Maquis. Yeah. The, the terrorist freedom fighter guys fighting in Space Israel or whatever. Oh, no, Space Israel is Bajor, and I think yeah. they're gonna they're gonna be well, they're Space Palestine also. But I have to be honest, I haven't gotten through much of DS9. I've seen large chunks of it, but completely piecemeal. So I'm. I mean, I watched it at two in the afternoon when it aired on TV. That's the extent of DS9. I've seen, but I've seen a lot of it. Right. And I watched, like, all of PNG and most of Voyager 2. So those sandwich in between, they follow up on. They talk about all that stuff, too. And yeah. I gather Voyager does a fucking bait-and-switch with the ending where they wrote themselves into a corner and then suddenly they're like, oh, and everyone forgets and, like, nothing happened or something. Uh, no, they, they, it's not like it was all a dream. It's not like it was, uh, Voyager didn't happen. But it was, I think, some time travel nonsense that allowed them to get home. Okay. Instead yeah. of, like, because the whole thing was like, it's going to take us 70 years to get home. 
or something like that. The warp the whole way, which by the way we can't, then <laughs> it's gonna be, take us 70 years to get home. There's all these things that happen. They're trying to get back faster. And then at the end, it's like there's a whole, there's a whole big epic thing where it's like the Borg are gonna conquer all of time or something. <laughs> and, and Time Janeway comes back and saves the universe and Voyager and lets them go home and also doesn't get in trouble for doing a bunch of illegal time stuff and all the other illegal stuff that Janeway did in the Delta Quadrant. So it just, I guess it just turned into a Doctor Who episode. Yeah. I barely remember it, honestly. Like, I watched Voyager, like, pretty avidly, pretty religiously. Okay. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't, I think I saw the finale. I just don't remember it very well. I don't, I didn't pay a lot of attention. Yeah. You know, mostly paid attention to that episode where the Doctor goes into Seven of Nine's body. Or <laughs> that episode where Seven of Nine kickboxes the rock. That's great. Or the episode where Seven of Nine is hunted by the Predator. <laughs> or the episode where those super aliens that were killing the Borg are hiding at fake Starfleet that they made. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I I need to see if I can find like a list of the good episodes of, of Voyager because I guess there are a lot of not very good episodes, and I've definitely seen some breakdowns of some of them. And mm. wow, yeah, it's, it's not great writing. Um, lots of misogyny. Yeah. Uh, just ridiculous. The typical like twentieth century like oh yes, it's jazz music. Or yes, I'm an expert on cars. Did you know that in the 20th century they had automobiles? And like, it's just, yeah. like, it's just always so like, they, they really need to center it on 20th century history as if that's going to be like the most important century in the 24th century. And a lot of that going on in it because I guess they want to make the characters cool or whatever. And I think, you know, it's easier to draw on that than to come up with new stuff that gets stuck in canon. Like, <laughs> well, it's nice it's off in another part of the galaxy so you don't have to worry about canon too much either. Because it's just yeah. like, oh, some weird shit happened, who cares? It's somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Except that they come back with all that knowledge, except that they don't or something. I don't remember. Yeah, or they introduce weird things like there's like the future of Starfleet is like these new ships that can like split apart into multiple ships for some reason. But like not like a bunch of fighters. Like, it's, like, weird, like, you know, think of, like, um, you know that, that movie Wally? Uh, yeah. And there's Eve. She's, like, an iPod robot. She's got, like, her, like, hover arms. It's, like, yeah. sort of, like, magnets, like, reconfiguring these, like, hover bits of the ship around itself into different feature formations. And it's, like, okay, well, did that come back ever? I mean, yes, we didn't make a uh, TV series that takes place after Voyager other than Picard. But I don't see that stuff in Picard. I don't see any more mention of these advanced prototype super ships that can reform. Yeah. T-1000 ships or whatever. I, what was the practical, like, it's, there's battle mode? And they have, like, I don't know, normal mode? I don't, I don't remember what the point was. It's stupid. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd have to see it to see what sort of sense it makes, but it's so they, make a lot. But they did write themselves in the little corners like that, where they like, they're like, oh, there's got to be the future, what's the future of Starfleet? And it's like, well, now you've defined that, and now are you going to stick to it? No, I guess not. Yeah, there was a lot of that in Star Trek. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, the first one, like the original Star Trek, they're just like doing all kinds of wacky time travel nonsense that just does not make any sense within that episode, <laughs> let alone future episodes. Uh, I mean, the, even the, the Star Trek movies especially are um, full of that, like going back and fetching a whale. Oh, well, that's the best one, though. Yeah, Star Trek was the best one. one. Um... There's also the, the what, Ephraim Coffin? Uh, no. Zephyrin Coffin? Zephyrin That's Coffin. the first, co uh, first contact. Yes. Which is, sadly, probably the best TNG movie. Yeah, it's probably. It's a low bar. It's like that or the, the one with the, the Borg Queen. That's, that's the one. Oh, yes, that is the one. My, why is my brain, like, cutting those into two things? It's just like, oh, there's one storyline and two storylines, but they're the same. Oh, there's story. a lot in that. There's time travel. There's Borgs. Yeah. There's a, a drunk <laughs> man going into space. It's post-apocalyptic. And all of the, the TNG, like, crew, just, all the, the Enterprise crew just being really weird and creepy. <laughs> oh, they're all fanning out? Yeah, they're all, like, fangirling hard. <laughs> He's like, I can't take this anymore, get the fuck away from me. Yeah, they almost ruined history by fang fanning too hard on him. Yeah. This poor drunk scientist. <laughs> I mean, I quite like the idea of him just being this grumpy old dude who's like, I'm not doing this to, like, change the world, I'm doing this for a fucking paycheck. <laughs> But also, like, he's so, like, big Gen X energy, it felt like. Like, he's, like, this grungy guy, like, listening to his old music. And, but, yeah. like, he was sort of counterculture, but then also, yeah, just wanted to make money. Yeah, he's, like, grumpy counterculture, but, like, making money because he has to make money. Not because he's, like, you know, like, giving up on changing the world in any meaningful way. It's like, nah, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's what the world does to you. And it, the world just kept getting that bad. This is, like, post-apocalyptic. First of all, is there even any money to be had? Like, what's this, what's this guy thinking there's money? I thought this was, like, a I don't know war. if it's explained at any point. Like, because it's, it's post this huge war and... Like, I don't know. I don't know if they ever explained it further. No. It's getting depressingly close to, like, when we'd be scheduled for a, a fucking world war, according to TNG, anyway. Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of the other stuff that they're talking about, I know in, in DS9, they're like, 
you know, like, oh, the riots, the, the bell riots or whatever, the, and the, there's a squatter camp in every city, and, I mean, <laughs> you go, go down certain streets in Vancouver, uh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a squatter street uh, camp in every city, there's massive populations of homeless people everywhere, there's like... Yeah, well, there are empty fucking houses, which is even mentioned in when they go back in time. Like, yeah. Or when they talk about the century, so it's like, mm, very, very awfully close to this predicted awful shit situation, but maybe that, that gives some hope that things could be better. Yeah, I mean, it's all predicated on a drunk man going into space to attract pointy-haired aliens, or pointy-eared aliens to teach us how to be good. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know, I guess at this point, if, if nice aliens showed up, there'd be a whole section of the population that would be like, no, they're bad. I mean, maybe I'd be with them. Like, that's a scam. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're going to give us super technology that's going to help us explore the stars. Let me guess, and then we'll be beholden to you, and we're going to have to do whatever you want, and who decides what planet we get to go to? Here's the difficulty, is like, you know, without the ability to, like, understand whatever species um, form of facial expressions, or whatever they use as an equivalent to facial expressions and what have you, we would be completely in the dark as to how much they were lying. We have oh, yeah. no idea. Yeah, they could be signaling, like, they're just terrible lies, like, la- our version of, like, laughing and snickering at one another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we totally, like, <laughs> really want world peace, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like, don't worry, like, we'll, we'll give you a bunch of technology. It's totally fine. You won't be, like, slaves for us. <laughs> Was it that song, uh, the Arthur C. Clarke novel, Childhood Dent, where the super aliens show up, and, um, every, they, like, take over humanity sort of thing, but, like, not, like, they don't conquer humanity, they just kind of show up with their spaceships over every big city, and they're like, we're gonna blow you up if you don't be good. You need to stop having wars, you need to stop hurting animals, and we're gonna teach you all the good stuff you need to know how to be, like, a real civilization in space. And the people don't trust them, of course, and, yeah. you know, it turns out that they're actually ushering us into becoming psychic children to join Space God and Union. But, <laughs> then there's also the Stargate SG-1 episode, where the super aliens come, and they give us technology, but then it turns out they're sterilizing everybody, and then humans can't have kids anymore. And then, and they have to, like, go back in time to stop that from happening. I enjoyed Stargate, even if it was predominantly military propaganda. There was a lot of good stuff around, like, different interactions with alien species. Like, the early idea, the idea of, like, the early ones pitching up on Earth and using people is, like, basically slave labor and hosts. <laughs> um, and, like, that's why the pyramids exist. I love that as a, like, dumb, you know, aliens type. Yeah. <laughs> aliens are real, they built the pyramids. Like, well, it, it's a delightful play on that. But, like, there's a number of those kinds of interactions with all these alien species that are just like, yeah, we pitched up and we made use of you. Like, and people were either guided into thinking they were gods or, like, and given all sorts of rules for how they were supposed to live or were just used as fucking, like, cattle. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> and, of course, nobody knew any better because... We couldn't read their expressions properly. We couldn't understand them properly. So this specific topic of not understanding aliens reminds me of another media recommendation of a film I saw recently that I think you people should watch. Uh, I'm a little late to the party on it, but um, Nope by, uh, what's his name? Horror Guy, Get Out Guy. Uh, oh. And, uh, I know his name, just, you know, brain is melted. Kim Peele. Um, yeah, Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele's Nope. Very good film. Okay. Um, I, I've been meaning to watch a lot of his movies because I am, I struggle with horror movies often. This one's barely a horror movie. Okay. It's, it is horrifying, but it's not a horror movie per se. And it, it, it's pretty upfront. I mean, it's no secret that it's about uh, aliens, like UFOs, but it's really not what you think it is. It, it's a, a completely different take on a UFO movie. Interesting. So okay. I highly recommend it. Really enjoyed it. And I actually mentioned to watch it again. I want. I very rarely want to see a movie right away. I just watched it this weekend, and I, I, I want. I would have watched it the next day again. Okay. Because uh, I want to revisit it, kind of thing. So Bria's media recommendation in the middle of the conversation about another <laughs> thing besides the thing we're supposed to talk about. Nope. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, this is going to be a completely weird one, but if we're doing like some recommendations of, of media, I also want to recommend uh, Puss in Boots. It's a, f- it's oh, a yeah. completely bizarre recommendation if you don't know anything about it, but I absolutely love the art style. And it is better written than I thought for a kid's movie. But uh, yeah, anyway, completely bizarre. But I, I want to check out Nope. That sounds, that sounds pretty worthwhile. Yeah, yeah Nope is dope. <laughs> We were talking about, we're supposed to be talking about Andor. Yeah. But do we have anything else to talk about Star Trek before we go back to Star <laughs> I think we probably, like, delves into that a fair bit. So, changing. That's how we got to Star Trek, changing Andor. And they made it more, like, serious. Basically, that's the main change, where it's not super Star Wars-y. We're focusing more on characters and mm-hmm. on, like, their real struggle. They're, they're, they're people that are not necessarily against the Empire yet, but yeah. we see the real struggles they face that lead them to be against the Empire and why they should be against the Empire. 
Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it reminds me of some of the, the bits and pieces I've read about, like, um, French insurgents uh, during the Nazi occupation of France. Um, some of the ways that people, like, were dealing with the Nazis in Germany themselves, like, just hiding. Like, there's a delightful scene in, I think, the first episode, where he speaks to his friend, and his friend's like, oh, where were you last night? I went up to your parents' place. He's like, no, you encountered me in the street afterwards, and they immediately just come up with a line. He's like, okay, who's going to be asking? Cool, these guys. All right, all right, I got your back. Just, you know. You know that worker solidarity? There's this planet, it's called, like, Ferrex is the planet they're on yeah. or something. And, like, it's like the working class planet. There's all these, like, plant workers. They all go to work, and they hang their gloves up on the wall. And they just leave them there, because you yeah. can. And then, you uh, you know, you, you grab your gloves and you want to work, and they all, like, have each other's backs. And it's like, people still do manual labor. People still do things themselves. They don't have an AI that just does it for them in yeah. the future. Which is an interesting side of Star Wars. Like, people still do things. Yeah, it's, it is an interesting, like... Star Wars has very anachronistic technology in a strange way because it like it's advanced future technology but also backwards as hell. Like they have a lot of things that aid them in manual labor in a number of ways, but they're predominantly droids. And they don't use like they have computers with really crappy displays and the weirdest interfaces. And it's like, yeah, a lot of that makes some sense. But a lot of their technology is like quite big and bulky and chunky and industrial. And it's sort of like such a weird, interesting, like they have these droids, but their computers are pretty dumb. Like they can't just like do a quick search because it's such a chaotic mess in their databases and all of this kind of weird stuff. Like Rogue One is a, a great example where they're uploading the plans to the Death Star, and it's this whole fucking thing where it's on a giant fucking physical disc <laughs> that they have to like pull out of this tower, climb to the top of the tower to show it into the array to like push a button to upload, and then it takes like five minutes. Like you have spaceships that can fly faster than this. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> like why is your technology worse than our broadband? <laughs> I was like, yeah, they got like uh, in Android. They, I noticed people are using like their space iPads, but they're like a big chunky iPad with like two screens that are diagonal. Yeah. Like it's just so like willfully impractical and like when the when the kid has his manifesto on that thing he's like yeah this is like old technology and it's like it looks like everything else you've got I mean, yeah like, <laughs> i know it's old technology but what is the new technology like like because it, it seems pretty similar and, like, I, I like that kid yeah. i really related to that kid i, I feel that same there's this whole speech about like how they try and make us forget skills they want us reliant on their technology uh, so they can control us it's like oh wow it's, it's me it, yep. it's, it's just uh, revolutionary me well the interesting thing for me within that is it also gives the space for like because the same character talks about using their technology against them using the empire's tools against them and it's like yeah i agree with both sides of that mm -hmm. you should be able to be not reliant on like whatever the established technology is but also use the shit out of it to fuck them over like it makes sense yeah uh i mean because if you i think seed that space entirely also then it becomes it's like they have complete control over it yeah dominance there i mean like in the in the setting the empire technically has complete control already but um yeah like you know i think in our in our day-to-day -day lives don't seed that ground if you don't have to. Make sure you're not reliant on it, but don't seed that ground. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Practical tips, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what a lot of this... I feel like this... I've known people have, like, kind of... They made fun of this idea of it, but I know you, were, when you're sort of selling it to me, were talking about how it feels in many ways like uh, almost... If not step-by-step -step guide, then, like, a sort of semi-comprehensive guide about resisting uh, an oppressive regime, how this would take place. Yeah, I, it's, it's definitely, like, something that I feel about. Like, it, it brings a lot of the, the steps of thought that people need to have. Like, Andor goes through this whole progression to get to the point where he is at the end of the first season, which isn't even where he is by the time of the, the movie Rogue One. Like, of just being like, okay, well, there's no fucking point in dealing with this stuff. I'm just trying to score a buck so that I can be as comfortable as possible. I can get the people I care about out of this shitty circumstances so that we can all live comfortably and not have to worry about all this shit. And steadily coming to realize that, that's not gonna happen. There's no way for that to happen because the powers that be don't want him to, don't want anybody to yeah. be comfortable. Yeah, like he, what happens is partway through the series, they pull off this mission that's the beginning of the destruction of the Empire, right? Yeah. And then he takes his share of the money, as he said, uh, he was just there for the money, mm -hmm. and then he tries to run away, and then he's on like a pleasure uh, planet, like a vacation planet, like Ryza or whatever in Star mm -hmm. Trek, and he is like arrested just like going to the store. Yep. He's going to get milk or whatever, blue milk, and the stormtrooper stops him for like no reason, yep. and he gets thrown in jail for six years for no reason. Uh, it's a completely trumped up charge. They're saying, you know, like a uh, verbal abuse of an officer and resisting arrest and all these things that he just didn't do. Cause he, <laughs> it was just asking any question at all, like, uh, you know, why are you stopping me kind of thing. I, I think, like, you know, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of people in minorities probably looked at that scene and were like, I get that situation completely. And I bet a lot of white cishet people looked at that scene and were like, 
the cops wouldn't do that. Only, only bad cops would do that in a I, bad place, not like here. And it's like, you know, the truth of that is that we see that kind of behavior all the fucking time. Like, that shit is happening all the time in, in day-to-day life. It's like, yeah, you know, he just got arrested doing nothing. He wasn't doing anything. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that was it. That was enough. Yeah. And it's like, he, he had to have the realization that that's what was going on for him to be like, oh, shit, okay, like, what do I do? And then discovering in the prison, down the line, it's like, oh, you're never getting out of this place. Yeah. They're keeping you here as long as possible. You can really see the, like, lights are flickering in his head. Like, A, he didn't do anything to fucking get there. And B, they're not following him out. Even if they did, he's just gonna get up, sent straight back. Like, what's gonna happen? And then it's like, that gets confirmed. He's like, nah, I'm, we're fucking out. Yeah. I'm, out. I'm done. Well, it's the scene that when they find out that, yeah, they're not actually ever leaving the prison. Anyone who, you know, this is, this is definite spoiler territory, I suppose, but, like, it's not a huge shock, really. Yeah. They're never gonna leave. And once the prisoners find that out, well, you've taken away their hope. So why would they keep being compliant? If they've got nothing to lose now, there's only one way out, isn't there? Yeah. So that's, you know, and they have a prison escape and right and all that, and it's great, yeah. great episode. But, like, yeah, like, this, this talking, we're, we're kind of kept in line in most of society already with just, like, this hope of, like, oh, yeah, well, you'll be rich one day. Keep working hard. You could be famous. You could get famous on Facebook or YouTube. Yeah. You could uh, become a, a social media darling. And, you know, you'll make a fortune in cryptocurrency and the new frontier in the metaverse or whatever. They keep giving you new things that'll give you hope. But it's always a con. It's always only a select few actually ever get. Like, I, I was just hearing this recently about TikTok. Yeah. TikTok will promote influencers that they really want to curry the favor of and get them yeah. to use the platform more. They'll court them by promoting their videos to people more so they get the sense that it's a good platform for them to use because they get all this engagement on their videos. So that way they start using the platform and then draw more people to the platform. Yep. And, like, they do these things where they, they... And then other people see it. It's like, oh, so-and-so's doing so well. They got these huge views. And it's like, oh, I could do that too. I could be like them. All I gotta do is work hard enough. And then I'll be famous as well. But it was always rigged. They just did it just to juice that guy up to get him there and to get you to think that this is a good place to be too. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if um, their algorithm has a waiting system for the longer you've been on the platform. So the the idea being that the longer you've been on the platform, the less it recommends you to the wider audience because that's a great way to like hit early retention. Yeah. If new users come on, they make a couple of videos, and those videos get a bunch of likes and, and views and what have you, they feel accomplished and having like made something that people wanted to see. But if that's being artificially influenced by just being bumped higher up the recommendation list in everybody's feed, then and by necessity, that would mean that they're not promoting people who've been there longer. You have to keep yeah. promoting the new people to keep them coming. And then like because their main concern is getting users, building a user base, not providing the users that are already there with value. Yeah. And so Again, once people figure that out, maybe they're going to be a little less likely to keep using it. And, yeah. you know, getting into a more serious sense of, like, life or death, like, this idea, like, buying a house. How many people are completely hopeless because they're like, I'm never going to own a home, having a child is impossible, like, and now you have things like AI art, like, taking away people's jobs. It's like, not even losing a job, it's like, I can't even have a job that I enjoy because even the enjoyable jobs are being turned into a boring technological slog. Yeah. What am I even doing here? Why am I following your rules? Why am I participating in your society? Why don't I just go nuts? Why don't I have a, a rebellion? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just it, isn't it? It's like, why not have a rebellion? What? What is stopping us from doing that is all of these things that just keep your attention, keep you focused, keep you hooked. And I don't mean like a rebellion in the sense of like, oh, let's pick up arms and shoot people necessarily. I mean a rebellion against the systems that are in place that make our lives worse. Like, you know, sometimes a rebellion can be something as simple as um, malicious compliance. Just like, do exactly what your boss says. To the letter. Nothing more, nothing less. Make him check every fucking thing you do. You're wasting his time. That is a form of rebellion. That's quiet quitting. Yeah, that's quiet quitting, which is, uh, there was another term for it that uh, unions used to use, but like, basically it's like, doing your job. Just do it, only do your job. Yeah. Not all the secret extra stuff that is expected of you in your job that they don't officially require you to do. Yeah, and like, you know, there is something to, to, to note in that, that like, you know, quiet quitting, just doing exactly what the letter of your job is, etc. It is something that you'll get pushback on. But again, it is a form of rebellion. You are rebelling against that system. You are choosing not to, to engage with it in the way that they want you to, because they want to keep you working there. Turn your, like, turn your phone onto silent when you leave work. Don't answer work calls. If you're not at work, it's not your fucking responsibility. End of, end of discussion. If the company isn't employing you, like, enough hours a week, just don't show up one day. Like, you know, th there's ways to just push back a little bit, like, give a little nudge against that kind of thing. That, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you gotta be careful in some instances of, like, if you don't show up, you might get fired. A lot of people are afraid of that, right? 
Yeah. So I, I want to say, like, you know, do that if you're in a position where you're looking for other work. Because I've, I've seen a number of cases where people are getting, like, 20 hours of work a week, but they're expected to have full availability for 40-plus hours a week, and the company just won't give them the hours, at which stage people can't afford their rent and what have you. And it's like, okay, if you're going to be looking for another job, don't tell the first job you're quitting. Just leave. Yeah. What are they going to do? Fire you? You know, go collect your paycheck and call it a day. Just never pitch up again. Even better if you sign up for a bunch of work for them. Yeah, you're... Your coworkers are not going to be super happy with you. I will say this. But the people that they should be angry with are the fuckers that won't schedule you for 40 hours a week. And chances are they are probably having the same grievance with them as well. Exactly. And if all of you do it at once, well, that branch is now shit out of luck. Well, uh, that has happened. Lots of places have had the whole staff quit all at the same time. Well, I gather uh, Starbucks has just hit over 280-plus, um, like, locations yeah, in the United States. States yeah. Which is incredible. A fucking round of applause to, to you. Congratulations, that is incredible, wonderful work. And, like, that stuff happens because people walk out. People were like, we're not fucking standing for this. We're out. Like, you either make things better or <laughs> you just don't have workers. Now, this is reminding me of something I was talking about yesterday with my partner about the California is supposed to be talking about moving to a four-day work week. Mm. Which is like, oh, that sounds cool, right? Yeah, three-day weekend. That sounds awesome. We all want that, right? And so supposedly you can get just as much work done in four days as five if you have that bit of extra rest. Oh, that makes sense. That's all yep. good stuff. We agree with that. I, that's not why they would adopt it. They'd adopt it so that officially a full work week is four days a week. Um, so if you're employing somebody uh, at four days a week, that would be full time, which oh, they have to give you benefits and stuff, wouldn't they? Which you know, wouldn't, that wouldn't be good. So what it would allow companies to do is then be forced to have people be working three days a week or less. And you, know, you can spread jobs around. Artificially lower that unemployment rate by giving more people more jobs. You can all work three days a week. You can all work two days a week at five different jobs or whatever. It's a four day work week for a full time job, but you don't have a full time job. You have six part time jobs. This is, uh, this is the difficulty. As far as I'm concerned, uh, minimum wage should be a monthly minimum or a bi-weekly minimum. Even a weekly minimum would be great. Um, weekly can be, a, like, it's actually an interesting way that uh, wage theft can occur where they just sort of square the numbers off a little bit so that every month that's shorter than 30, like, that's shorter than 31 days, um, they just pay you for, like, 30 or 29 days and then those last two days for every month that's longer than that just get sort of quietly shaved off. Oh, my God. Yeah, because they pay you the same amount every month, but, like, some months are longer than others. So yeah. why should that number be different? Yeah. <laughs> like, Very cool. um, so yeah, I think like, you know, having either a weekly or a monthly minimum wage amount, this is how much you should earn a month. Companies are not allowed to pay you less than this. If you work for a company, if you're registered to work for them, even as a contractor, they need to pay you this much at least. That should be like a standard. Because then it doesn't matter how many days in the week you work, they have to pay you this fucking much. Which means that they actually get some fucking work out of, the, like you get proper hours because they use your, you to the normal amount. Like, rather than just like, no, we'll uh, schedule you when it's convenient for us to fill in gaps. So in the meantime, just starve, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this sort of militant compliance uh, to bring it back to the sort of talking about resistance, um, you know, and, and finding little ways to resist, even if it doesn't feel meaningful. Yeah. And that being a point, uh, it was like in the little manifesto or whatever of the guy in Andorra. Yeah. Just like every single little act of rebellion kind of adds up and kind of builds the spirit. And like, if you, I don't know, you could be at your job. You could be at somewhere where you're trying to resist somebody who has power over you. Just doing any little thing. And it's not openly or like easily traceably, uh, you know, like something that you get in trouble for or whatever. Yeah. Just, just little things. Like just building that up and building that attitude within yourself and those around you to normalize resistance, normalize not just taking it. Yeah. I, I think, like, you know, you need that kind of attitude to, to be at enough of a, a level for you to take any further steps. But it also, you know, if enough people are being maliciously compliant about, um, like, their day-to-day -day job requirements or what have you, like, if your boss says you've got to do this and you're maliciously compliant, if everybody's doing that, you can actually change the standard because... Where are they going to find workers that aren't doing this? If everyone's behaving like this, they have to change the rules because otherwise they're fucked. Otherwise they're up shit creep. This is going into what we talked about earlier about the massive bureaucracy that's required to like control an entire galaxy. All the work it takes to actually control every person, every town, every space. Like you can't, you can't micromanage everything. It's too much work. And uh, in the same little manifesto bit, I remember talking about how like power is very brittle. Yeah. It, it's actually very easy to resist a direct power. I think this is an original thought to this series or whatever. There's yeah. another, I believe it's a Chinese philosopher, the modern Chinese philosopher talking about this. The, the um. The brittleness of a direct power, if it's just ruling by brute force and exerting control directly over people, it can be resisted simply by resisting it. 
someone resisting it even once shows that it's not invincible and all-powerful. Yeah. If you make God bleed, he doesn't seem like God anymore. And so, you know, when they insist on controlling every single thing, it can be very easily dismantled even from making them control everything. Okay, we're all just doing exactly our job, so you have to micromanage every little thing I do, otherwise it's not going to work. You don't even want to be doing that. What you want to do, the reason why you micromanage what I do, is so you scare me into getting to the point where you don't have to micromanage everything I do. Because I will just manage myself out of fear. Yeah. And so, making them get crushed under the own weight of their desire for control, like you can't only do that, it's not going to work on its own. But that can be the first stage of like, kind of like, it's like when someone's trying to pick you up, the maliciously compliant thing to do is just to go completely limp and just be a dead weight that they have a hard time picking up. That was my favorite tactic. Um, like, so I, I was a big dude in high school. Uh, I stuck out, and you know, like I am glad that I don't have to be that anymore. But I have a few guys who used to try and like pull all sorts of shit with me. And my favorite tactic is they they try and get me in a headlock. Maliciously compliant. I weigh over three hundred pounds. Here, carry an extra three hundred pounds for five seconds while I fall on you. Oh, look at that! Fight over. Like, <laughs> nobody expects you to just go. Okay, cool. Here, carry me. <laughs> yeah, they're expecting you to be holding yourself up out of fear. Yeah. You're, you're afraid of what they could do to you, and like your your effort to not fall down or be taken down is actually helping them lift and control you. You're fighting against them. It's not to say you shouldn't fight against them, but, like, it's, like, again, relying on your fear to support their efforts. Yeah, it's also way easier, for, for an example, to use the, the headlock metaphor again. So you drop your weight into their arms so that they're the ones holding you up, and they manage to rally against that. Now you just kick as hard as you can. Suddenly your head goes into the back, of, it goes into their chin, and they're, again, out cold, because you chose the right moment to do the, what you need. Yeah, to. yeah, it's like doing a tug-of-war, and then you let go at the right moment. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, if you let go, and then you yank after they've lost their balance, voila, that's it, you win. Like, yeah. it's, it's about... Picking your moment, and it's about like not playing by the rules that they are pretending exist. Yeah, they need you to believe they exist more than anything. Yeah. So you know, just we've been talking a lot about like the the kind of ways to, to rebel in some ways against the, the power structures that exist, and how Android like speaks to a lot of those kinds of things, and that kind of like bureaucratic weight that that um, sits within the, the the huge like galaxy spanning empire, and like how there are a number of places where the right application of, of force can help dismantle an oppressive and controlling system. And it's like, you know, I think, like, we're, we're mostly speaking about, like, breaking an existing system, because that's so much about what the show is, is about. Um, and, like, yeah, you know, just ways to, to, to deal with those oppressive forces. And I think that's something that is honestly quite relevant today. Like, you know, we've been speaking about, like, all these different companies and these media empires and what have you, and, like, it is kind of surprising that Disney is putting something like this out there, because in many ways, often, Disney feels like a bit of an oppressive force within the creative industry, and certainly within, like, you know, media in general. Yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, is it just complete non-self-awareness? Is it hiding in plain sight? I think the difficulty that capitalism so often has is that it almost always tries to turn everything into a profit motive, including counterculture. Yeah. Mm, like punk rock, for instance. Punk is the whole idea of punk, from what I understand of it, is to, like, be counterculture in some respects. It's to not accede to authority. It's not to, it's to not deal with that kind of stuff. And yet, capitalism just neatly wraps it up, packages it, and sells it back to us. Like, And it's like, imagine, like, a large portion of the people that this series is supposed to appeal to are, like, Twitter libs, like, people who are, like, resistance against Donald Trump or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. They, sort of, they, they think they're freedom fighters. Like, imagine, like, there's the senator character in this show. And, like, how many of those people, like, actually envision themselves kind of like that character? Or, or, or like, they, they come from that kind of background, but they also think, oh, yeah, but I could be Cassie and Andor and bomb things, too, against Donald Trump. Like, they're like, our democracy is good, but it's only because of a bad empire that's making it bad. I mean, the irony is I was in some respect to that person as a teenager. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was not fully a Twitter-led in the past, but, like, I still kind of believed in the system a little more, and, like, I think probably up until maybe... Like, okay, it's hard to describe. I definitely, in my teens was a punk rock anarchist talking about how like Bush did 9-11 and stuff and then in my 20s I kind of I think it was like a little more like oh but maybe maybe you know I'm actually just rebelling it's kind of silly and gotta be practical and maybe, you know, maybe the system's not all evil and then I came out as trans 
and realized like, oh, no, wait, actually, the system is not on my side. They'll happily side with literal Nazis uh, to get what they want. And it's just been a steady decline of that up until like probably 2020 when it was very much like, oh, yeah, punk rock me was right. I was, I was smarter as a teenager <laughs> than in my 20s. So I, I actually, for me, it's been a steady path to radicalization. And I figured I was trying to part way through that. Um, like I, I came from a background that was very like, you know, oh, capitalism is the, is the right way. Or as my mother used to put it, she believes in a, uh, what's it? What's the term for... Uh, my mother actually just believes in this concept, like she used to tell me all the time, of a benign dictatorship. Oh, God. Which is, you know, a horrifying concept to me now. At the time when I was young, when I was like 15, I was like, yeah, benign dictatorship makes sense, because I've definitely encountered that some people are smarter than others. And like, at the time, I thought I was very smart for a number of things. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I've encountered a number of stupid people in my day-to-day life, and they shouldn't be managing anything. And I was like, well, no, that, no, not a fuck. That's not how any of this works. Um, but... I started to see the cracks in the system. I started to see the inefficiencies. I started to see the things that left people hurting and wanting and, and all these kinds of things. And I was like, well, capitalism keeps... Like, people keep talking about how communism was terrible, but, like, capitalism is just leaving these people out to die in the fucking street because, it, you know, it's too expensive to house them. Or it's too expensive to feed them. Sorry, we don't do charity. It's oh, just yeah. fucking, like, starve to death, I guess. I love how that, that global count, the ticker of, like, victims of communism. It's like they include all, like, famines and people that died under Stalin and Mao's kind of terrible yeah. agricultural reforms and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty bad. That's fair enough. It also includes, like, Nazi officers that were killed in World War II. Uh, uh, so, you know, fuck? yeah. You know, there's, there's there's a few things, and it even includes, like, people, like, it, like, they'll include basically anything they can to count it against a death against communism kind of thing. So when you hear these death tolls, it's like, 45 billion people have been killed by communism. It's always like, yeah, but a bunch of that's kind of, like, low-key fake numbers, and you're massaging those numbers. But more importantly, meanwhile, they don't count all the people that starve to death uh, around the world as deaths from capitalism. Every single person that dies that could have been prevented if they were given access to what they needed, but they weren't because they couldn't afford it, that's on capitalism, yeah, by the same logic? I mean, it should be, but, and this, this, is, a, this is a key feature of my path to, like, figuring this stuff out, is, like, you know, you can't look at these comparisons and then just be like, yeah, no, capitalism didn't kill anyone ever. No, it's just a good one. Yeah. It saves people because people can buy food. (laughs) Yeah, if they can afford it. And from the jobs that are handed out by the people with all the money. Uh... Yeah, this is, this is fine, actually. It's fine that, like, you know, 1% of the population is the job creators, I guess, to be charitable. Like, they're the ones who decide who gets to fucking eat because they're the ones who decide who gets to get employed by them and therefore get some of their money in order to afford the stuff that they're, like, that they effectively own by, like, paying people to make for them? Like, what are these people doing? They're just going, no, you get to eat, but not you. And, and, and at the same time, though, they'll say, like, oh, but uh, you won't have freedom. You'll be one, you know, they'll, they'll determine what your life is, that they, the government will tell you what to do and how to live, rather than this rich man will tell you whether or not you get to live and what you have to do in order to get to live. Like... <sighs> and this is, this, is, this is actually where, like, anarchism, for instance, gets done dirty all the time. Because, like, the idea of anarchism being like, oh, it's just chaos. No, that's yeah. not what anarchism is. If you just go and, like, you know, I'm sure plenty of the people that are listening to this podcast probably already have some idea of this. But, like, go look it up. Anarchism is a complicated and deep ideology that has a lot of parts and a lot of thought that goes into it. And the best way I've heard to describe it is, like, no unjust hierarchies. Which, you know, pretty much all of capitalism is unjust hierarchy. It's like, I stepped on these other people in order to make money by exploiting them. And fuck those other people that I just didn't care to. I, I heard that elaborated on as uh, anyone in a position of authority, uh, it needs to be justified. And if a position of authority can't be justified, then it is eliminated and replaced with a non-hierarchical, horizontal distribution of power and authority. Yeah, that makes good sense. If you know about something, like bridge engineering, then you should be in charge of the bridge engineering project. You can have other people that are working underneath your expertise, but perhaps they're all equal together because there's no reason for them to have a hierarchy. Why would they? They're just doing their thing on the bridge, and then they're going to listen to you because you're the bridge engineer who knows how bridges work. Yeah, that's like, you know, another good example is on a ship. Like, the captain is chosen by the crew to, to like, run the ship. Like, not in our current system, but in, in an anarchist society, they would be chosen by the crew to run the ship because they're making the decisions under pressure where you don't have time to have a sit-around debate. So you need, under pressure, to have somebody going, you do this, you do this, you do this. 
this. But like, at the end of the day, they're also just another crew member. They're just a decision maker under pressure. Well, of course, the interesting thing is, is that despotic regimes really like to have uh, situations under pressure. They really like to have a, a war going on where they could have war measures act and emergency, uh, state of emergency declarations. And they say, oh, oh sorry, I got to be the chancellor for life. Uh, we'll, we'll rebrand the galactic, uh, what's it, the, the government thing? Yeah. Uh, republic. The galactic republic is the galactic empire now. Like, you know, they love to have a little crisis where I'm the captain of the ship. You all have to listen to me. Maybe we'll worry about that free healthcare and democracy stuff another time. Right now, we got to win this war. I mean, I've, I've heard it described before, fascism as being like the immune system of capitalism. And it's like, in order to have fascism, you need to have a crisis that gives that oomph to give it like more control and more power because that's how they gain control and power typically yeah. is through what through a crisis manufactured or otherwise which is why it's always telling that most of American politics is like around a certain time of the year in the election season you get a bunch of crises that pop up that just get lots of news coverage on all the like most conservative fucking media because that's their manufactured crisis for the year to try and push some more people into fascism and have an, an enact whatever agenda they've got oh we want to do this thing well we need to be in response to something yeah. otherwise it's just us doing a thing that people don't want like I mean fuck what was it this recent thing with um, them using meta handing over fucking data around this young woman having an abortion they just handed data over to the, the state so that they could effectively punish this woman for having had an abortion Jesus. yeah just like you know talk about the systems of power just like fucking over little people well and all of this talk about corporations and capitalism isn't just our usual rambling commie selves it's actually relevant to this tv show because corporations actually factor quite a bit into it a lot of the bad guys in this show are corporations working alongside the empire yeah i mean it starts with the corporate security like the corporate security are the ones that's like cause this whole chain of events to really kick off because they're being petty little shitheads trying to well especially the one guy who is the biggest fucking bootlicker excellent job from that actor honestly hats off to the guy Beautiful portrayal. He is the slightest fucker I've ever seen on TV. Oh, yeah, he's just trying so hard to get approval from Daddy. And by Daddy, I mean Space Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and oh, there's so many layers of his, like, weird creepiness that gets portrayed. It's just, it's work of art, honestly. Um, I really like that. Like, I like that kind of thing, this portrayal of this character. That, like, I've definitely met people like this. I have met people that are this kind of slimy. They're just, like, they really love that taste of leather and boot polish. And they, well, they want a taste of the authority that it brings. They, what they really want is to have power over others and to yeah. matter in some way. That's, that's it, isn't it? It's like, there's so many of those kinds of people who just want to have that, like, exercise that power. And it's like, I guess that's one of the things that I struggle with, is like, I've never had that same kind of desire in that same way. I would much rather people were happy. I would much rather people were having a good time. I don't feel a need to, like, step a boot into anyone for, to have a good time. Like, you know, save that for kink. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I don't want to step on anybody unless they're really into it. Like, and we're having a good time with it. Like, it's funny, I was thinking the same thing of like, I don't, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't think anybody really likes being told what to do, except for the people that are, like, sexually into it. Yeah. Outside of that, though, yeah, no one really wants to be told what to do, but I think some people respond to their desire to not be told what to do by, like, telling others what to do in order to, like, you know, it's like, kill or be killed, bully or be bullied kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen that attitude. Like, that was an attitude that I saw a number of, um, a number of guys I grew up with just sort of getting really stuck into this, like, you know, I've got to be the one in charge. i got to tell people what to do because I'm tired of being told what to do. Mm. Um, and, like, you know, therefore, if I can control the situation, then I get to tell people what to do. As opposed to, like, well, hey, if you don't like being told what to do and you don't like all this control being used on you, how about you just leave yeah, that situation? We could all just agree to live in a society that functions in a way where people aren't told what to do by somebody on top of them. Yeah, we could work towards something that everybody gets to work collaboratively, where everybody's just like working with each other because that works well. But I think some people are afraid that if things got down to it, nobody would really want to work with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's that, there's that side of it, right? I mean, and the psychological roots, I think we talked before in previous episodes about, like, people that are, like, basically just, they got abused, essentially, into yeah. becoming their parents. And they really want their parents' approval also, and whatever approval their parents are seeking. And they have to justify, like, what their parents did to them, basically, in order to not feel like they were horribly abused for years and years. Yeah. And, you know, this character, the slimy corporate security guy, like, he's got his dynamic with his mom, where she, like, oh, yeah. is so domineering and controlling and belittles him, and, like, everything is so transactional in their relationships. Like, it's this total business mindset, and it's very manipulative, and, and like, it's, it's clear they don't actually like each other. Well, it's like, um, 
so a lot of those seeds hit pretty hard for me because I had a mother that used to refer to me as an investment. And often she oh. was referring to me as an investment that wasn't paying dividends. She literally says that in she it. She literally, like, yeah. So when I, when I was hearing that in, the, in, in Amber, I was just like, oh, I, I, I have been in this position, but my brain went completely the other way. I looked at that and was like, how could somebody treat another person like this? And like, I've got a pile of trauma. I'll be the first to admit. i got a huge fucking pile of trauma, but I'm working hard to work through it. And I am doing my damnedest not to spread that, the effects, and to repeat that trauma. Like... Yeah. Well, well, these people, of course, as we probably talked about before, like, also, they've never learned how to process these feelings, they never learned how to process their trauma, they can't even admit that it exists, yeah. because that's too scary. So they just stamp the boot down harder, and double down on all the lessons they learned from their awful parents, and that's how they get through life without having an existential breakdown. Yeah. And yeah. then they reinforce the systems around them. Absolutely. Like, that's that's the thing that is, I think, so frustrating for me about so many of those people, is, is like, what it takes to break that cycle, what it takes to, to, to deal with that kind of thing, is to love yourself enough to try and, like, work on your shit. Love yourself enough to, like, make an effort to make your head a better place to exist in. Like, and as a result, you will have a knock-on effect on the rest of the world. Don't take shit just because people are dishing it out. You don't deserve it. And as a result, don't dish shit out. Like, you know, <laughs> you don't have to repeat these patterns. And if you find yourself doing it, seek help in stopping it. Like, I don't know. I, it's a totally different mindset. It's like we're talking about aliens. None of these people would listen to the show either, of course, right? Like, for the most of part. Like, that's the most frustrating thing with media. Like, I don't want to get too far afield, as often we do. But, like, you know, people talk about, oh, these shows are so good. They educate people. They show people, like, you know, it's, it's a way to resist a fascist regime. Or it shows you that gay people are okay. Or it teaches you how to be good. But the thing is, like, the bad people that you disagree with, like Donald Trump supporters or whatever, like, a lot of them could just watch the show and imagine themselves as, no, I'm resisting the bad guys. All those those damn Democrats, all those people pushing global homo and the vaccine, I'm actually resisting against them. And I'm like, if, if you can see yourself in anything if you want to, if you want to see it as heroic. And so it's really hard for it to really teach a lesson, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, like, you know, there... I do think that there are a lot of people to whom could do with hearing more of this kind of message in a way that is pretty clear about resisting against the people in control and in power and what have you. And I think shows like this that show the mundanity of, like, that kind of control um, and how brutal and, and just how much it kicks out at everyone, even in its, like, just incompetent mundanity, is... I think it's powerful for people to see that and to see the steps to resist against it and what have you. But you're right that, like, you know, you look at uh, Fight Club, for instance, the author of the book was trying to make fun of, like, the kinds of people that were portrayed in the show. And it ended up just being something that got latched onto by a bunch of guys who were like, yeah, let's have a Fight Club and beat the shit out of each other in the basement. Like, that's somehow the message to take from that movie. It's like, uh, Starship Troopers is another example where people just, like, you know, it's very obviously anti-fascist if you look at it as a piece of, like, you know, taking the piss out of fascism. But if you shut your eyes to that, it reads like a piece of fascist propaganda. The, the Dunning-Kruger effect is very powerful. You don't know what you don't know. And a lot of people, um, they're just not self-aware. And they can just, they'll fly over their head, the, the satirical aspects, and just think, oh yeah, that's badass and cool. It's, it's cool to shoot bugs in space. It's also, I think there's an additional difficulty in that a lot of people who would do better to analyze pieces for themselves seek authority figures to analyze it for them. And like... Certainly that is something that seems to happen on the on like Fox News and what have you, is people seem to form their opinions around what's being said on those shows because it's easier than coming up with their own opinion. Um, you know, we spoke about it in like the meme uh, episode, just like this, this idea of like people sending NPC memes, but they're all sending exactly the same yeah. NPC meme exactly the same way. And we're all just sitting there like, do you see yourselves? I just got 6,000 copies of basically the same message. It's the same thing as like, you know, conservatives only have one fucking joke. It's like, or I would say two jokes, which is one, hey, life bad, and two is like pronouns. Yeah, attack helicopter. <laughs> yeah, it's just various forms of the same fucking joke over yeah. and over again, one or the other. And there just doesn't seem to be a lot of nuance other than that. Um, and it's like, yeah, I don't know, like those kinds of people you're never going to get through to, I think, mm -hmm. because they're just going to keep taking their opinions from the talking heads on their TVs or on their YouTube channels or whatever the fuck, because they're not interested in engaging with that mentally. Yeah. 
Ben would never say that like media has no value. That it's like you couldn't ever convey a message through a story. I, I wouldn't. I mean, I work in stories. Like, yeah. I'd have to just change careers altogether, which probably isn't gonna happen uh, if I really believe that. But I, I think we can't rely on it too strongly. We can't be like, oh yeah, if everybody just watched this TV show. Yeah. Um, like Martin Luther, when he started like the Protestant Reformation, he did all his beef that he hung up on the church door, or whatever, and you know, kicked off that whole thing. He really thought that if people just like read the Bible and and did what he did, that um they'd see the same things that he saw. But almost immediately, as soon as you you know enact the idea that it's uh you can have your own interpretation of the Bible, oh, it turns out a whole bunch of different people had a whole bunch of different interpretations of the Bible. Yeah. So and he got very mad about that. He was like, <laughs> no, you're doing it wrong. You got to do it the way I said to do it. Like. And so, you know, you can't really get mad at people, like, they interpret a TV show or a book or something differently than you did. Or they saw themselves in it when you hope they'd see themselves as the villain or whatever, like. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a delightful sort of variation on that theme is, like, queer coding in movies having always oh, been yeah. about villains. And, like, what was the result? Well, most queer people just identify with the villains in a lot of pieces of media as a result. Like, fucking, was it Ursula the Sea Witch? Like, hell yeah. He's great. She's just divine. <laughs> like, uh, like yeah. literally, the, the drag queen divine. And, yeah. And, uh, all of those, they always queer code Maleficent and. Yeah, like, such fucking style and poise and so much drama. And, like, how could we not get attached to that? And it's like, oh, I'm like that person, but that person's kind of cool. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like, um, I can't remember the French filmmaker now, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know real, I'm not a film person, but uh, he, you know, he said, um, you can't make an anti-war movie if it shows any violence, because violence is fun and cool and exciting, yeah. you know, like, even if you try and make it awful, there's a good chance, and I'm not going to say never, but I, I think generally speaking, it'd be really hard to effectively not make violence look cool just by showing it, because it's going to be exciting, it's life or death, it's the most oppressing thing, your brain can see it, and then immediately your animal nervous system's going to kick in and be like, oh my god, I gotta escape from this violence, like, it's going to activate you no matter what. I, I, so, and this is an interesting thing, because, like, um, th there's a, a prime example for me with the movie Saving Private Ryan. Um, having not grown up in America, in North America, I watched that movie and had an extremely different reaction to it, seems what a lot of people did, which is, like, the opening scenes of that movie are harrowing. And, like, we, we also know just how harrowing they were and how close, in some ways, they were to reality based on some of the incidents of, um, vets having, like, a PTSD reaction to that opening oh scene of the movie. And I was like, you see guys with their guts, like, spelling out and stuff like that. I think what would be a far more interesting but horrendous movie to make if you really show off what war is like is take all of the worst moments of guys bleeding out and screaming for their mother on the battlefield just do a fucking super cut of that because like that shit will scar you and it will make it very clear that that's the effect of war is like guys bleeding out pleading for their mother in the sand while bombs go off next to them like there's no good in that there's no hurrah for a good fight it's just just children bleeding out in the sand well i was gonna say like the real like we talk about like the um the civilian cost of war just a bunch of school children getting bombed a bunch of poor yeah. people huddling in a building getting killed like that's the majority of what war is doing too right like yes the soldiers but also all the other people like it's, yeah. it's, it's horrifying, so you're showing violence, but it's not, like, action-packed, like, Luke Skywalker, you know, beating up a bunch of stormtroopers to save Grogu or whatever happened. Yeah. You know, like, it's showing badassery, you can't. You can't, you know, de-glorify violence, but then also glorify it by showing someone be really cool with a gun or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, so much of America is sort of built on the, the myth of the gun. As though the, the, the right person with a gun is going to save the day, is going to make everything right. And it's like, well, mm, even American history is full of the opposite of that. Well, it's just like giving people different interpretations of the Bible or uh, having a benign dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Like, you think, oh, yeah, if you just have the good person in charge, it'll be good, right? Like, no, you're going to, every dictatorship probably thinks they're benign, yeah. but they're not benign to somebody. They gotta, they're imposing their will, and the people that don't agree with that will, well, too bad for them. And then, you know, on the same side, they're the, uh, different interpretations of the Bible, right? It just creates chaos. Like, the point is, is people aren't going to do what you want them to do. People aren't all going to be the same on this. You, you can't just assume, oh, yeah, good guy with a gun, that'll solve everything. No, you're going to have more guns out there. You're going to have more bad guys with guns. Yep. And uh, the same with, um, I don't know, how do we get into this from Andor? Well, <laughs> <laughs> like, Andor has some pretty cool violence in it. There's some really cathartic violence in it, but yeah. usually the way it's portrayed is it's like, it's a resistance of... It's a resistance and a reaction to the violence perpetrated against them. Yeah. Is, and, you know, something that we, we spoke about earlier on in the episode of, is like, you know, all them hanging up their, their gloves on the wall and like nobody's going to nick it because they're just a community. They're a community that works mm. together. And like, I really like the, the idea of when you die, you get baked into a, a brick that gets put into a wall or a building somewhere. Like, that's a really cool part, like little thing. You're just part of the city. Did like, you catch that detail of the, the first blow that stuck in the final riot is the brick? Yep. 
It is. What a deep, what a, what a lovely detail. Just like, from the grave. Fuck you, here's a brick to the face. <laughs> Felt like it was some big Stonewall vibes. I think there's a little, little, another covert Disney nod to the homosexuals. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it was intentional, but certainly that's how I read it. And like, it certainly has that kind of meaning to me. I, yeah, like, that, that violence that's portrayed in the show is extremely cathartic. Because it all, it is all kind of like this response. Like, to, to go back to the, the glove thing, like, there's a, the first time there's violence in the, in the show that really gets, like, shown off. Um, in like this big scene of like a whole, like, showdown fight almost. Like, people start ringing the, the whatever's like hanging on their buildings to just alert the whole fucking city that this is something that's going on. Like everyone in the neighborhood knows shit's going down mm. because they're all like rattling these things and then the moment somebody hears it they move to theirs and they start rattling it and the next and so on. Mm. And it just propagates this message. Um, and like that's a recurring theme in the show. Just like community coming together and being like, oh, they're starting some shit again. Let's let everybody know, get everybody prepared because we're working together in this situation. But yes. it's like this kind of like community organizing. And it's like, you know, speaking about anarchy and things like that, nobody is leading this charge. Nobody is like, yeah, one guy at the front is like pushing this forward. Everyone's just working together because they're like, fuck, we've got to deal with the fact that they're like jackboot kicking our faces in. Yeah, I think it's, um, there's something interesting about that community setting there because we live in this sort of modern era where, like, there isn't a whole lot of that for the most part. And, like, it's also like how there's manual labor being done, but we're living already in an era where, like, a lot of manual labor isn't being done by certainly people in our sphere. And, like, it's a sort of, I don't know, anachronistic future, but, like, it's showing the parts that kind of need to happen. Like, you need to have a community. Do you have a community? Maybe you should have a community. Maybe you need to make sure you have one so you're not alone. Yeah. You can't get through this alone, right? And maybe you need to uh, be in control of your labor in order to actually have any real power. You know, maybe you should be making sure that's something that's going on in your life and not just letting yourself be an atomized worker at the whim of your boss. And, like, you know, it's not that these people had a tremendous amount of power, but it was only because they had these structures that they were able to resist. Like, perhaps this story is focusing on this community, not just because Cassie and Andor is living there because he's the hero. He is the hero because this community exists and is able to resist through community action. There's probably tons of Andors that didn't make it because they didn't have a community backing them. Yeah, I think absolutely. Like, you you see, there's even there's that one kid whose dad gets taken away and effectively killed. I think he does actually straight up get killed. Anyway, but he, he ends up building a fucking bomb. Yeah. He's part of the, the fight against the stormtroopers towards the end. And it's like, like, that kid would have died immediately if it weren't for the community that was there. Like, one of the one of the other main characters, like, just helps escort him to safety after he's thrown the bomb. Like, that's a huge fucking thing. Like, because otherwise he would be dead. Because he was ill-prepared and un, unsure of what to do in that moment. He just was trying to strike out against the people that had hurt him so badly. And it's like this kind of moment of compassion and showing him that there's there's a fight to be had. Everybody is fighting. And people are dying. But this kid gets helped out of the way because, hey, that's a fucking useful skill, amongst other things. But, like, you know, just, like, that moment is one of, like, the community coming together to protect their own. The community coming together to, like, push away the people that have just been oppressing and murdering and beating them for nothing. And it's, like, something that's an extra detail that I find really interesting in the show is, like, on that planet, they're, a lot of what they're doing is cutting up relics from the, the Clone Wars. Um, like, they're busy, there's a couple of scenes where they're just, like, cutting ship pieces apart and they're pulling out chunks of cable and all of that, that kind of stuff. And it's, like, because that's what they're working on on that planet. And it's, like, well, we have that kind of dynamic on our planet now. We have people, like, working in just horrific conditions mm. dealing with like terrible things because it's cheaper to employ people than to use machines yeah they mentioned that I don't know was it in the prison or yeah. what they're talking about how like you're, you're easier to replace than a droid so yeah. like that's why they were and like we think oh yeah why would people be doing any work right the computers will do everything it's like well a computer's kind of expensive and hard to get you can make a person really easily actually yeah. we, we can already grow people and they're growing anyways and we've got a shitload of them and if they're really desperate uh, you can make them work for basically nothing and it doesn't take a lot to train people yeah. to do complex tasks to build a droid to build a robot that does a specific task in a complex manner like I think those um, those auto manufacturing arms robot arms are like hundreds of thousands of dollars from what I know like and they have like extremely complex custom programs you have to do this whole fucking thing just to do one tiny part of a job like an assembly job mm. a human can build a car from start to scratch they're slower they can't repeat it as easily but it doesn't take as nearly as much to train them and, and just, if you had to have somebody replace somebody else on the line they could like okay so you're all doing one thing on the car you're not all building the car from scratch yourselves but oh Joe had he's not here today or whatever he got stuck in a machine and was killed or whatever well yeah. Larry can fill in his spot on the, the line right like yeah. you can we're a little more flexible in that way well it's like how do you train somebody for a new position well here's some materials maybe somebody who's sort of vaguely keeping an eye on you get to it yeah you spend like a few hours or a few days depending on the task to make a robot like attach a door panel for instance that's 
fucking months of work to build the, the fucking robot arm, and probably days to weeks worth of work to program it in a way that's going to make it work with this current assembly. Like, at best. And it's like it's a complicated process that required a whole bunch of investment and time to build up to the point where even that is as efficient as it is. Meanwhile, how do you train Larry to just put on the door? Here's a manual. Here's a guy doing it on this car. Watch him. See you in three hours. Yeah. Like, done. You oh. don't need to supervise it. You don't need somebody, like, you have somebody who's keeping a vague eye. He's not just actually, like, doing it, like, training the guy. He's just keeping an eye to make sure he doesn't cut his own hand off. And you think, oh, yeah, but that, you could have problems with the human worker or whatever, right? He could get uppity. Like, well, one, this worker's gonna be so desperate that, you, well, you keep him desperate, that he won't be uppity, right? You make it so they'll just work for whatever you tell them to work. I mean, they've outsourced, we're talking about auto manufacturing. Almost auto manufacturing doesn't happen with guys named Joe and Larry. It's, it's Jose and, um, another Spanish name. I don't, I don't know Spanish very well. But it's Mexico. It's, it's where they do most of that there. They, they yeah. ship it to cheaper, more desperate people. And yeah. two, uh, if you have a robot, if, and maybe, you know, you're not paying for wages, you're not paying for food, you have to worry about these things with a robot, but you do have to do upkeep. Who's doing the upkeep on the robot? Well, it's gonna be some engineer guy. And that guy gets paid a whole lot. That guy might even have some bargaining power because he's educated and has a bit more status. So, now you have to deal with that guy, I'd rather deal with a bunch of poor Mexican people that I can just bully and replace at will. Yeah, especially, like, having, and uh, this is where, like, you know, immigration, illegal immigration, all of this kind of stuff gets interestingly terrible because it's another way that um, companies use um, that kind of leverage against people. It's like, okay, well, you get some immigrants to fill your, your factory. Even better if they're illegal immigrants because if they start getting uppity, you just let the, what's it, um, I, ICE know and they come and pick them up and yeah, deport them. It's great. No more wage, like, negotiation because, hey, they have no leg to stand on. I can just get them thrown out of the fucking country. That shit happens all the time. Now, what's worse is if you work in America and you're looking for a fucking job and you were born in America, your job is being taken by people that have been shipped in specifically by these companies to take those roles so that they are easily, like, exploitable and throwawayable effectively, which means that they lower the um, price that these companies will pay for that kind of labor. It's not on the immigrants that are doing these jobs. It's not their fault. They're trying to, like, have a better life, which, frankly, why would anybody have a problem with that? They're doing their damnedest to have the best life they can. That doesn't seem like something to be upset about, but the result is that anybody, any worker in America is stuck with lower wages as a result because, well, big companies are just fucking over everyone they can at the same time. Not to mention, they shave off, uh, you know, their, their profits, they're, like, maximizing their gains, right? They're, yeah. they're fine-tuning their budget and how their company works, assuming they're gonna have the cheapest wages possible, right? And then they become dependent on it. The company only functions if they have this super cheap labor and they're, you know, skeleton crews or doing whatever uh, terrible hiring practices they have, just yeah. so they can maximize the profits for the guys at the top. Yep. It's, like, way cheaper to just exploit people, and it's like, oh, you're at the bottom rung of, of this system, you want more money? Uh, how about we just don't pay you and you don't get to eat or have a roof over your head? Is that a good enough threat to keep you working? I was like, oh, we need you to work overtime. Well, I don't want to work overtime because I'm fucking, my bones are tired, I'm hurting, this job is killing my health. Well, you better fucking work overtime if you want to eat. Yeah. Like, you know, those situations give the employers all the power, which is why, you know, once again, resistance is, rebelling against that system, rebelling against that, like, thing is really important. But, uh, you know, they've got a, there's the two sort of labor settings. You've got the, the folks on Ferrex, the, the good-based worker collective that all look out for each other. And you've got the prisoners in the prison factory where it's like a competitive race. So it's like seven floors, seven rooms in each floor, seven tables in each room, seven guys on each table. And it's like you all have to build these components and you have to, uh, it's like a race. Whoever makes the most components wins the day on the shift. They win the shift. And whoever makes the least components gets electrified because all the floors are electrified and everybody has to go barefoot except for the guards. And then they just electrify if you get out of line or if you are too slow producing these things. And so they keep everybody in competition. You're mm -hmm. always struggling and striving. If you win the shift, then you get to have flavor in your food that night, yeah. I believe. And they have all the foremen of every room, like, competing with the foremen of every other room, and every floor mm -hmm. is competing with every other floor. They're purposely keeping everybody in competition with one another, so they just buckle down and work as hard as possible. Yep. Like, that's that's the beauty of it, and I say beauty of it in the most, in the worst kind of beauty, and, like, seeing beauty in the most disgusting thing, if that makes sense. It is this insidious kind of control that is perpetrated by getting people to compete with each other. And, like, we see this even in, in modern society. Like, the idea of the white picket fence, the two kids, the two parents, that whole idea of that family unit is predicated on competition. It's why the suburbs are so full of people just, like, competing with their fucking neighbors for who has the bigger lawnmower and who has the, the nicer front yard and shit like this. Because it's always about competing with everyone around you. Because in order to gain anything in our society, you have to compete with others. You have to take from them in order to get for yourself. It's like, 
That's, a, that's such a fucked up idea because it keeps everybody in line. It's like crabs in a bucket. We're just yanking each other back down into the bottom of the bucket. How dare you fucking climb? Fuck you, come down. Maybe like, I'll get to the top if I pull you down. Yeah, and it's like if we all work together, you could get everyone out of the bucket. If you all linked hands and then one climbed up and then they started like pulling the others through, voila, you'd get enough crabs out of the bucket to pull the remaining ones out of there. Like, yeah. Well, the prison, of course, as we mentioned earlier, they only get out when they realize they're not getting out, and so they yeah. all have to, like, just do it. Yep. It's like a very do-or-die kind of situation. And, like, they, they, they keep you competing because they have that promise of, like, oh, you're going to the fence, you could be famous, you could have this or that thing you want. Yeah. And I don't know, I feel like they've, they've taken away, these days, they've taken away so much of that promise. They could, surely, like, they must be either supremely stupid or they know something that, that we don't. Of, like, you know, you just take away people's hope. How are you going to keep people doing this thing for you? Like, if something's going to give, you're not paying people more, they're not getting anything they want in life, why would they keep working for you? Well, so some smart people that have lots of money that are at the top of the current system are aware of these kinds of things and they try and put sort of controls in place. It's where like a lot of billionaires that do charity work come from because that way they get to control where their benefits, where their money goes to, to helping people. But it's also a self. It's something that keeps people from getting too upset at the system. Like there's this concept of like old money used to have costume jewelry and like hide how wealthy they are. And even you'll still even see that in some cases, especially in Europe with old money families that just, you know, they don't wear the fancy expensive jewelry out except to very specific, very select events because you don't want to look too rich in front of the poor people because otherwise they get mad. Which, you know, America seems to have taken that concept and thrown it right in the fucking bin, which is making people more and more upset. What's interesting is they've got, there's like a new generation of new money with these tech billionaires and such where they're like, I have a $5 haircut and I wear the same gray t-shirt everywhere and I just live in this normal house or whatever and I only drink kombucha. Like they don't, they're not doing the excess. Like they, they are in that they live incredibly like, like they don't really have to work at all. They get to take private jets everywhere. They, they do a lot of rich person stuff, but they aren't doing the excess. They aren't doing big crazy parties. Like, well, this is the interesting thing, because a lot of them are doing sort of big crazy parties, but it's very, like, circumspect ones that are out of the way, or they're doing things that are easier to hide, and they're relying on that public image of being like, oh, I'm just living like a normal person. Mm. And it's like, it is very much a front. Um, and, like, I, I wish more people could see it for what it is, which is that front that, like, oh, you know, I'm just like you, I wear hoodies and, and shitty t-shirts, except my shitty t-shirts cost, like, $10,000 and never, like, break from wear and tear, and you actually have no idea what I'm actually wearing on a normal day at home. Yeah. You only get to see the, the occasional things that I do as public appearances. And, like, Yeah. It is an attempt to do some of the same kind of thing, because they've seen some of the backlash of being outwardly, like, extremely rich. But I don't think that they have the decades slash hundreds of years of practice at doing it, and there is still this American pressure to be very publicly wealthy. I can believe there's an aspect of it that's, like, they really believe it. Like, they, they don't want to be bad, maybe. They're like, oh, no, I'm a good, normal, hardworking person. I can just, like, going into, like, I go to retreats. I, I know, I do this uh, Buddhism mindfulness retreat or whatever now. I only drink healthy stuff, or I, you know, I practice this thing. Like, they're spending their money on things they think are making them better. They're honestly kind of boring and joyless. They're not just, like, drinking and eating big feasts, <laughs> you know, like... So, um, another sort of weird media recommendation to make in this moment is, have you seen Glass Onion? No! Okay. I didn't watch I the other one, too, either. Oh, I would absolutely recommend both of them. They are an absolute delight. They're very clever. They're very well done. Glass Onion has some interesting things that I don't want to spoil too much in this moment. But what I will say is that, like, I think a lot of these guys want to believe they're good, and no one around them is really telling them they're wrong. And anytime somebody does criticize them they get lots of other people who are telling them, no, 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 it's fine, you are, like, you're gonna change the fucking world. Like, Musk is surrounded by idiot yes-men who just say, oh, you know, he's gonna change the world, that's why we should just be forking over billions of dollars because he's protecting humanity's future or some bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the Mars colony is the future of humanity, that's what we should be doing. And it's like, nobody is thinking too hard, and in his quiet moments, I'm sure he thinks he's doing a great service to humanity. Um, and he certainly speaks like he's doing that, but... Is he really? I don't think so. I think he's just kind of fucking the world over. Oh, yeah. Like, like it, it, nothing he's done has really survived any kind of real examination. Yeah. And, you know, he's so obviously incompetent in his conduct on, like, with Twitter and, like, everything else he's done. Like, I, I can't imagine how it is there's still people that don't think he's an idiot. But more people than ever seem to think he's an idiot. Well, there's this interesting thing where I'm not entirely sure he's an idiot. I think he's just extremely deluded. Because, like, for instance, the Hyperloop example that uh, came up recently is, like, Hyperloop is now basically fucking defunct. There's nothing going on there. But it was a fucking handy distraction for governments to invest money into because it stopped other forms of public transit being made, which makes more space for his cars, which makes more space for his dumb fucking, like, 
transit ideas to have more room and to keep gaining more money and more influence. So by suggesting an idea and being like super full on board with it, and then everyone who tries to implement it is like, oh, this is actually a really fucking stupid idea. But they can't say that too loud, because if they say that too loud, then they get shouted down and what have you. But it also serves him in this weird fucking way where it can just like delay other things from happening, delay other things from working. And it's like, there's a part of him that is very shrewd about shit like that. But at the same time, like, he's also a fucking idiot, as we've seen with Twitter. And I think what's happening now is that more than ever, he has more people who are just going, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, to him. And we're finally seeing the, the real, like, face of it, because he's convinced he's smart enough and a big enough dude to, like, really, I don't know, sell this shit? Well, he's clearly smart at something, yeah. but uh, it's not any of the things that he wants people to think he is. Absolutely. Like, yeah, I, I, I think he's a, a shrewd marketer. He's extremely good at marketing, but I think we're starting to see the rails fall off. I think a large portion of that shrewdness, as we think I talked about in another pod, is just him appearing the way, like, Reddit nerds wanted him to appear. Him yep. looking like how people currently want a billionaire to look. He's younger, he's, he's sort of hip, not really, but he was hip for, like, 2010-ish, but not really. <laughs> and he, like... He talks in this grandiose language about the future and humanity and the consciousness of the stars and like it's not he doesn't really talk about money that much no. he talks about grander things he, it's, he, and he portrays himself as a scientist mm-hmm. and not a money man who just gives money to people to make things happen and attaches his name to it like he's convinced people somehow that he's something he's not he I think in many ways has created a sort of this this persona this idea of selling himself as the the kind of that hero you know like when um iron man i think it was two came out he was in the movie and like there's a lot of speculation that like the the mcu version of iron man was partially based on people's idea of elon musk and what have you is like yeah he's selling himself as like the equivalent of iron man yeah he's selling stark yeah Uh, it's like the truth is he's not he's a fucking idiot but he's really good at selling that image but we're finally starting to see the the paint that was hastily applied just peeling the fuck off and the gross underneath is showing well it's crumbling under its own weight just like he's okay he'll always have yes men around him he'll always be getting whatever he wants if he always gets whatever he wants like george lucas nobody's saying no to him his movies are eventually shown to be shitty and he as the creative genius is revealed to not be a creative genius maybe a certain kind of creative genius but not this grand visionary who can just make anything good because he's so great yeah no he can provide one very particular kind of input and then you need a bunch of other people who actually know what they're doing to make it happen yeah they need to like you know they need to know when to step in and say no and like there is nobody that's doing that and on top of that like you know this is one of the dangers of like people having that much money because if you have that much money under our society nobody can really say no to you with any effectiveness well just like workers are completely replaceable uh even if they're not desperate mexicans working in a car factory or something like elon musk could just get rid of an engineer he could just get rid of someone working at twitter who tells him his tweets aren't funny and that's why he doesn't get engagement like i don't care who you are all this fire you're gonna place you with some other guy who will happily take a salary the best part about the whole twitter thing in that regard is that we see how hollow those threats can be though because, like, those are the threats that are used to keep people in, like, under control. And he's been using that to just, like, replace anybody that disagrees with him at Twitter. And Twitter is struggling and falling apart. And we've seen so many, like, weird dumbass changes and him claiming stuff and having engineers pitch up and be like, that's not how any of this works. You're an idiot. Like, there's so many of these layers of things. Because, you know what? The, the people that were working at Twitter weren't irreplaceable. Like, weren't replaceable. They weren't just parts you could shift out. Yeah, you can do that to a degree, but not to the degree that he has. And, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's it's a total mess as a result. Like, this is, this is what happens if you just let those kinds of lies stand. I know that's a bit of a like weird tangent to pull off there, but like you can't let those kinds of perspectives, those kinds of lies stand from people like that because A, they're not in touch with reality of what things actually are, and B, they don't have as much of power as they want you to believe they have. The more power that you believe they have, the more control they have over you. Well, it reminds me of in the prison in Andor, uh, they've got like the voice changer. Yeah, there's like a story deep voice, which isn't going to sound very deep here because we're in the chipmunk dimension, but they have a voice modification. They're, they're, I'm not going to do it anymore. They're, they're talking very deep and scary, and it's like whenever they have an instruction for you, they, like it comes through in the scary voice, and then you find out it's like this fucking dweeb. Like he's like, he's not like a nerd or whatever he's like a guy in a military uniform he's like you know he's kind of this little ben shapiro dork and he's like put your hands on your head on program like you hear his actual voice and he's a you know little dweebus and like they have to present themselves as being great and powerful laws but it's actually just a little man behind a curtain kind of thing yeah like the prison is staffed by like 20 guards or something stupid yeah like that's it 
and they're mostly keeping all of the prisoners in place based on just the fear of the punishment. They get the electricity. Yeah. Oh yeah, we don't need all that. We just have the electricity. And like, it's same with like, oh yeah, we don't need too many engineers at Twitter. We're running on a skeleton crew or whatever. We don't need too many people on shift. Yeah. We'll just run on a couple people. And, you know, if someone gets sick, it'll, sh- it'll still work, right? Or we'll just have an AI write all the programs. We don't need a bunch of people actually properly doing it. Yeah. And, and then they're going to become vulnerable. Gonna, their whole organization is actually going to be very easily toppled over because it's just been min-maxed to have the few key parts necessary to make it run at a you know minimum cost, basically. Yeah. Which isn't always the best way to run things. Remember when we min-maxed our economy to just be about making a bunch of people at the top the most amount of money possible and then a pandemic hit and then it turned out that you couldn't even go like a couple days without people like constantly working in order for everything to not completely fall apart yeah and then those same fucking billionaires just pocketed massive amounts of extra profit by you know exploiting the people that they kept pushing into dangerous situations that cost them their life on occasion yeah like yeah (laughs) so it's they're trying to present something as unchangeable and all-powerful but in doing so and in their own greed they create a system that actually is toppleable it's not impossible to defeat yeah It's, uh, I, I think, uh, I'm interested to see where it goes with the show. It ends on, like, not really a cliffhanger. They leave it open for more. Yeah. They, they do, you know, like, you got Andor, you see his little beginnings, and then he goes and he gets radicalized and goes and does a mission, and then he runs away from the mission afterwards and thinks he can be safe, and he goes to prison, and prison radicalizes him more, so he escapes, and he goes back home and has to, like, save his friends, and then that's where, like, the rebellion really kicks off, it seems, that that planet rebels, and they all go off, and they're gonna... Like, uh, I guess do more rebellion stuff. We don't know yet. Yeah, we're gonna see where, where things go. I think, like, you know, the next phase of, I think, Andor's character development is probably gonna be more about turning him into somebody that is actively fighting rather than just finding himself in situations where he needs to fight to get out, but switching it to more like him taking the opportunities to do extra steps to, to push that agenda, push that rebellion forwards. Do you think a trilogy of seasons would be the best for it? You could have, like, this is the new hope, and then we need an Empire Strikes Back, and then we need a Return of the Jedi with Ewoks. Um, I think a degree of that, but... I can also kind of see Rogue One as being a bit of that third, mm. third season. Because, again, although, like, it, it definitely has its problems, there is a degree of, like, that kind of final big strike that really, like, pushes things forwards. And, like, it's also, in my view, it's a pretty compelling way to end that kind of storyline. I mean, we already know that's where it ends because Rogue One came out already. But, like, just the fact that it is a sacrificial push to make the universe a better place. So do you, think, place. do you think then they should just do two seasons and then have it finish with Rogue One? I don't know. And this is the interesting thing. This is where I'm really happy to see where the writers could take it. Because if they keep this kind of quality, I'm excited to see what they come up with. What if they did, uh, they go the anime route, where, no, they don't redraw it as an anime, although I think a Star Wars anime might be kind of fun. I think, they make that? They made a Star Wars manga, I know, but... Um, they made, so the first Clone Wars series was a bit like a... Oh my god, I was hoping we'd talk about Clone Wars. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to finish my thought on this, but I, I actually would love to talk about Gendy Tartakovsky's Clone Wars. But uh, what I'm trying to say, though, is the anime route would be where you make a movie, and then you redo it as a series. So they made Rogue One, but honestly, it was kind of lukewarm reviews. What if they did it again in Andor? Would it be better? I, if they were given creative control, I think it could be better. I don't know that they would be able to, um, because I think Disney is pretty fiercely like, oh, the movies are canon and this is what's being We're not, we're not doing weird anime canon where there's two different versions of the same events. Yeah, I get the feeling that's not really what Disney wants to be doing, but we'll see. Like, I think this is a direction that Disney was just like, we, they're throwing their hands up and not sure what to do with the fucking franchise. They're like, shit, it's nothing, we're, nothing else that we're doing is really working. People love Baby Yoda and that's about it. So yeah, to, to, to go back to the, the Clone Wars, I know you wanted to like talk oh. about the, the Jindy Tarkovsky. Yeah, so you watched it, did you? I watched bits of it. I keep wanting to try and like get hold of it again. To oh, I, I got it on DVD. I can, I can oh, really? you can yeah. watch a DVD. Yeah? Yeah, I got all of it a while back. Um, it's, yeah, it's really great because it's like also that anti-Star Wars, but in a totally different way. It's pure Star Wars, even pure like prequel Star Wars, because it mm-hmm. takes place like between Revenge of the Sith and Clone Wars. Or yeah. Attack of the Clones. Yeah. Um, and it's like, uh, but the thing that makes it anti-Star Wars is it's not dialogue driven. The episodes at first are like, five minutes long yeah. it's just entirely action with almost no dialogue Yeah. and it just is so, was so refreshing back then because you didn't have the awful George Lucas dialogue you didn't have uh, like the sort of goofier well there was goofy parts of Star Wars but it, it just allowed for like 
really intense, fun action set pieces to happen. And it was just kind of jumping around the Clone Wars. What's yeah. different stuff happening? What's Mace Windu doing? What's Obi-Wan doing? What's Anakin doing? What's Yoda doing? And they're, they're doing different battles around the galaxy. And, and then it starts to coalesce into a more coherent story later. But honestly, the beginning where it's just random battles happening is fun. Nice change of pace. I, like... That is something that I quite enjoyed about the original, uh, not the original, the, sorry, the, the prequel movies. The, what I really enjoyed about the prequel movies was, like, these massive scale battles between these different groups. Like, you had some of that in the original movies, the original trilogy, but it was, there was a lot more to it in the, the prequel movies. But they were done really cheesily and done really badly. And, like, seeing that Clone Wars um, series, that first one, seeing those battles, because those are the ones that I, I picked up on. They were, they were really fun, because it was like, oh, this is the kind of fighting that I wanted to see. This is the kind of, like, fucking space... Star Wars, like, Jedi bouncing around kind of stuff that feels gritty and better than, like, Yoda turning into a fucking disco ball. But it also worked better in this format of, like, a cartoon. Yeah. There's this Samurai Jack Cartoon Network art style that Genji Tartofsky does, and it's, like, the... It, it just it looks fun and cool. It's gorgeous art. It's probably done digitally, but it has a very graphic, drawn feel to it. Yep. And it, it's just aesthetically... It's so nice. It's, it's probably my favorite Star Wars thing overall, outside of, like, maybe the original movies, which I mostly love as... Like, I love the puppets and all that practical effect stuff. That's why they're yeah. so great. But outside of that... Um, I kind of like this animated series the best because it's, it's so damn good. I, I really want to see more of it. Like, I, I saw the, the follow-up um, slash replacement. You got the 3D one that George yeah. Lucas took over, right? Make it more dialogue-driven. I I enjoyed parts of it. And there's... I don't know, it does some interesting things, but it it always left me feeling a little strange about it. I watched parts of it, which I really enjoyed, but it was very, like... It was very kid-friendly in a way that that other series kind of wasn't. Even though I know it was, like, showing on Cartoon Network, it was just, like... It was way grittier about the kind of, like, action sequences, much more, like... I don't know, much more interesting artistic views on these fights, whereas the 3D animated one was very like, oh, they're doing flips and tricks, and it's, you know, back to back to the prequel movies, basically, in terms yeah. of like, how a lot of the, the combat went. And, like, some of it was really interesting, but I, I miss that grittiness, that, like, artistic style. I really liked that. It had something to say, even without any real dialogue. It was just like, yeah, these fights can be really cool. Like, um, as a weird side note, one of my favorite pieces of, like, Star Wars weird things that was created was the trailer for, I think it was The Old Republic, um... One of the trailers where the Sith, like, crash into the Jedi Temple, and they have this huge, like, fucking battle with a bunch of them, just, like, Jedi and Sith fighting each other, and it's this whole fucking thing. And, like, there's a few layers to those those cinematic trailers where there's a few battles, and there's a couple of interesting, like, minor narratives. There's basically no dialogue, aside from, like, a few things talking about the general state of the, the galaxy, and there's just really cool fights between Jedi that don't look like, again, Yoda turning into a fucking disco, disco ball bouncing off the fucking walls. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I don't know, Jedi fighting each other is cool when it's done right, when it's done interestingly, there's so much there. Well, there's basically space ninja samurai. Yeah. With some added magic. Ninjas have magic, but they got different magic. I mean, I can do a lot with that. Yeah. And, like, I mean, it's like we said before at the beginning, talking about how Andor is not really like Star Wars and it's refreshing. Like, it's easy to have too much. I like Star Wars when there isn't a lot of Jedi for the most part. But if you do have Jedi, it is possible to make them really cool and interesting. Yeah. But very often it just kind of, I don't know, it becomes so samey. It just becomes, I guess I'm just not impressed by, like, CG graphics, I suppose. Like, I... maybe I'm just biased that way, but it's not. Maybe it's with the choreography too, but it's not exciting. I don't care about the CG fights you see in like the prequels or whatever. They never, there's no stakes. There's no weight to anything. There's often very little by way of stakes, and it often feels very like hollow because you know you know that you know that Anakin is going to get through the fight. Like the only fight that you know that he doesn't quite get through is the one where he gets all his limbs cut off and he's like burning to death because you know he has to turn into like a fucking over uh, overcooked steam bun in his helmet <laughs> the last movie. Um, but like you know he's there's sort of no stakes to these situations like oh he's trapped in this this pillar whatever will happen well he's gonna get out somehow there's probably gonna be a lot of flippy flippies and weird lightsaber tricks and as set pieces <laughs> yeah it's pretty boring i i enjoyed the like droid factory fight a little bit more in i think it was the second prequel movie because at least it was a bit more interesting there was like elements that were a play that made it into like more of a back and forth had a bit more of a dynamic and pacing kind of situation where he's like warding things off and what have you and there's the possibility of some of the other side characters getting harmed or hurt in some way like but most of the time the stakes are just sort of 
Yeah. You know, I think it was. It was because people liked the Darth Maul fight in Phantom Menace. It was cool and acrobatic, and you know, the sort of martial arts flair to it with his double-sided lightsaber. And so they were like, "Oh, let's have more of that. Let's do mm-hmm. more of Darth Maul. We can't have Darth Maul again." And mm-hmm. you know, maybe we won't get it like some supreme martial artist. Let's just have Hayden Christensen and uh, what's his name? Who's Obi Wan? Uh, he's a famous actor. Everyone likes him. Yeah. Bad yeah. You and McGregor. Yes, that's the one. Just have those guys jump around. We'll have CG puppet Yoda jump around. CG Count Dooku jump around and, yeah. and do big flips and not do like martial arts maneuvers like whoever that. I don't remember the name of the guy, but he wasn't accomplished like martial arts and stunt performer who played Darth Maul. Like. Uh, was it, um, Christopher Lee? No, that's, that's Darth, whatever. That, oh, that's, yes, that's yes, Count sorry. Dooku. That's Count Dooku, my brain. But, like, yeah. the, the other two prequels, they just thought, people like the cool flips and stuff, so let's just CG cool flips. It's like, no, the cool flips were cool because a person was doing them. That's what made it look interesting. Yeah, and, like, I, I'm here for some, like, silly nonsense where they're jumping up, like, three stories or what have you. Yeah, they do that like, in, in uh, Empire. Yeah, and, like, you know, um, so the, as, a, as a weird comparison, the best fight, probably one of the best fight scenes that I, I quite like is that scene of Darth Vader invading the ship in Rogue One, where he's just, like, walking down the corridor, he, like, fucking picks a dude up, he's just, like, throws him onto the ceiling, and then casually just sort of, like, backhand fucking slices him in two, and he's just, like, tearing through these rebel troopers, and he feels powerful. And then, like, you know, you see these other fights later on, like, every strike he has feels purposeful and powerful and, like, carrying the gravitas of his character. And then you see the prequel movies, he's like, oh, look at me, I'm doing fucking 60 million flips and bouncing off things and, like, wiggling around and I'm doing a million spins with my lightsaber because somehow that's gonna do something. And it's like, where's the gravity of the situation? They're, they're having this fight, but it just feels like they're like, doing a weird dance at each other. Which is an interesting way of, like, to kind of undersell Darth Vader later in that way. Like, you describe him as, be- as feeling very powerful in those scenes, but if you look at what he's doing, it's yeah. not more impressive than this, like, flying around, like, Dragon Ball Z fighting that they're apparently doing in the prequels. Like, Jedi seem like a completely different beast in the prequels, whereas in later Star Wars, it's like, oh yeah, they kind of look like, ah! And they have a sword fight that's, like, much slower than a gunfight would go. Like, like I would have loved to see a scene with, like, Yoda versus, um, Count Dooku, for instance, where they fighting relatively slow. These are two old dudes. They're two old men. I mean, it's more about like, the mind. It's about, like, yeah, their, like, their knowledge and wisdom and strategy. Like, can you imagine how much more powerful it would have been if Yoda just, like, squared up slightly, swung his sword at Count Dooku as a sort of, like, blocking maneuver, and just launched Dooku across the room? Like, it would have just been like, okay, he was not doing bouncing flipping flips. It's like, it's like oh, understated movements. Yeah, he's doing a very straightforward, like, he's just... He does more like, with less. ...one strike, and there goes Dooku sliding back. Or, like, when Dooku controls it and then, like, slides him back. And, like, much more of this, like, very tight, closely fought, like, closely shot thing. You can even have that kind of, like, iconic, like, crossed lightsabers, and they're, like, glaring at each well, other. They definitely have, like, this, like, look. Like, they're, like, completely focused on one another because it's, like, the battle yeah. of the mind. It's, like, their power. Unseen power is at work in this battle that we, the audience, can only see some of the effects of in the real world. And, like, yeah, like, a spiritual battle taking place between these two great figures. I remember in, um, I think it was the second of the original movies, um, like, the, there's that scene where Darth Vader is starting pulling stuff to throw at Luke. Yeah. And, like, there's that scene of them rattling on the wall before they get yanked off. Like, have that kind of stuff. There's a little bit of, an, of that in that, like, fight scene between Count Dooku and, and Yoda, but it's sort of more goofy, and then they're, like, flinging giant fucking things. Well, it doesn't help that it's all, like, rendered in this really awful, like, early to mid-2000 CGI. Like, yeah. Like, they could have done a really interesting setup with, like, hanging it from a fucking, like, a piece of the thing with, like, I don't know, wire or something holding it so that it could be, like, a kind of weird tug of war where it's, like, trying to go in both directions, and that's part of their fight. It's, like, you know, you have this close-up of them, and then you peel back to, like, you change the focus so that you see more of the background. You see pieces on the walls are, like, vibrating and, like, wiggling back and forth, and you can see that they're having this intense fight that's really understated because it's, like... It's like, like a, having visual contrast, because we already have a bunch of flipping around super sword fights happening. Like, we don't need to see another one. Maybe we need to see another different kind of fight. It's like, you know, in Phantom Menace, they've got the, the three cut together, they've got, like, the sword fight happening on the planet, they've got the battle with the Gungans happening on the planet, and then they've got the space battle happening with Anakin in space. Like, three yeah. different things going on. Oh, actually, no, also you've got the palace storming guys, too. Like, very different. I'm not going to say Phantom Menace is a good movie, but, like, this is kind of a common Star Wars thing. We'll go back to, you know, like, Jedi has, um, Luke on the, on the Death Star with the Emperor and Darth Vader. We've got, uh, Lando and the Rebels fighting in space against the Death Star. And then you've got Han and Leia down on the ground doing battle with the Stormtroopers and the Ewoks. Like, three visually very different things happening, and that gives each one of them something to do. Whereas it's just like, no, everyone's doing flip-around sword fights, and then maybe there's also laser gun fights. And, like... 
you know, that's sure, but like maybe you could visually change it. Like I said, have Yoda and Dooku have a fundamentally different kind of fight. Yeah, it would also, like, and, and this is another interesting thing for me, is like it would have made that scene just prior to it where um, Obi-Wan and um, Anakin have the fight with Count Dooku just beforehand, um, Anakin gets his hand cut off. Like, it would give that way more gravity if Dooku was just like, yeah, I'm just fucking toying with you kids while you like do flippy flips, and now I'm fighting somebody who's serious. And, like, that's, oh, it's so undercut that scene for me, because, like, the first fight scene then just becomes kind of a joke. It, it becomes like, oh, okay, okay what, what was this? Well, we've, like, built up to this tension of, like, okay, he just got his hand cut off, and, oh my god, Yoda is bouncing off the fucking walls like a ping-pong ball. What the fuck is going on? And now they're just, like, flinging various bits of stuff that, like, later on, Darth Vader is, like, rattling objects off the wall to fling, but in this fight between Dooku and Yoda, they're just, like, casually throwing things, like, chunks of building at each other. Now, like, there's something to be said, I was talking about underplaying the Jedi, and Darth Vader's weaker, apparently, in the sequels than he was previously, right? Yeah. And then maybe because, like, oh, it's diminished... Uh, Jedi, like Jedi are a fading light in the galaxy and like the Emperor wants that maybe, maybe he wants the Jedi powers to kind of go away and then only he's got any kind of powers and everyone else gets kind of worse, like I could see that but like there isn't, I don't know, they didn't lean into it because these movies came first and these other movies came after, right? Yeah. So they couldn't, much like with Star Trek, New Trek and their problem of they wrote in Super Tech before later series that were made before it, mm -hmm. um, you know, okay you've made the Jedi super powerful but now that means the Jedi are diminished in the future, but you didn't, you didn't set that up, you didn't, like you didn't talk about perhaps like... I don't know, a fear about the Jedi losing the Force or something. Like, maybe talk a little bit, foreshadow the fact that maybe the Jedi will become weaker in the future, or the Force will become weaker, or almost barely exist at all, because the hope will die out in the galaxy, or, you know, like, yeah. give us something to explain it, because otherwise it just kind of seems like, oh, the Jedi were super powerful in the past, and these guys just kind of suck, I guess. Well, the interesting thing for me is it would add, like, having a much more measured fight, where it's much more about, like, kind of, like, solid strikes that, like, kind of push each other back and what have you. If you look at the fights in the original movies, they had a lot more of that energy. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, in the first, like, in the second movie where, where Luke faces Darth Vader for the first time, you can see that he's being overpowered, but you can also see that, like, Darth Vader is kind of pulling his strikes. He's not really, like, trying to kill this kid. He's trying to convert him. And even in the third movie, there's a degree of that. There's, like, they're, they're trying to, like, convert him to start with before it eventually, like, switches over and eventually, that, you know, Sidious is doing his thing and, mm -hmm. and then you get thrown off the side because Darth Vader is like, nah, fuck this. That's my kid. How dare you? Um, like... You know, that would have way more gravity because, like, okay, Luke is still sort of outmatched in that situation. He wasn't the one that, like, actually made things, like, made that fight work. But it would be way more interesting to have that kind of idea of, like, in that one, they're much closer to evenly matched because he's using his kind of, like, gained ability and his strength. But it's still a very deliberate fight. They're, like, you know, locking blades at different angles and he's very focused and there's, like, great shots of all of it. It could have been, like, so much better to have the kind of idea of these really potent Jedi just having this very deliberate fighting style. It's much more about, like, overpowering and finding the, the weak moment in the fight rather than just, like, okay, we're going to do lots of flips and hopefully one of our blades will nick the other person, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Now, you know, speaking of cool stuff and visually interesting depictions, I think the Clone Wars TV show did a good job of General Grievous, who is mm. very goofy in the movie and is not a very well-portrayed thing at all. And they, they kind of, in the movie, he's just, like, on the ground, basically, and then he, like, has his forearms or however many it is, and he, like, spins the lightsabers on propeller hands and, like, yeah. it's kind of goofy robot shit. Whereas they have him in the cartoon show, like, he climbs around and he jumps up and hides. And he, like, uses different tactics than typically Jedis are using, right? Like, it's a completely yeah. different fighting style. And it's really menacing and scary when he first shows up. And I believe this came out before Revenge of the Sith. Like, the, mm. like they were foreshadowing Grievous in Revenge of the Sith by having him in um, attack, uh, Clone Wars. And so he shows up and he doesn't know who he is. He's just some guy. And he, like, wipes out all these Jedi and it's this really crazy scene. And it really yeah. added a lot of drama and scariness to the show. And it was, like doing things differently. He wasn't just another villain doing the same thing all the other Jedi are doing. But the, the movie suffered a lot from the, like, off-screen success, because he looked goofy in a lot of the, the fight scenes that he was in. There was a degree of menace, but it wasn't very good. It wasn't His really, voice like... was too goofy. Yeah, and, like, you know, it could have been done a little bit better, but also, like, the framing and the, like, you know, um, was it Hello Again, General Kenobi? Oh, yeah. Um, just, you know, it, did, it didn't work. That was that was the moment, actually, that I turned it off when I was watching it for the essay I was writing. It was like, I have been taught your Jedi arch by Count Dooku! <laughs> like, alright, I'm done. I can't yeah. watch this anymore. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it would have been way more interesting than saying, like, oh, he's collected a bunch of lightsabers. And that would have had way more impact if either he was much more menacing in that situation and less, like, oh, you've been teaching me the Jedi. Like, instead, he was just, like, either got down to business and started fighting in a way that was, like, less 
less bluster, more actual thing, especially as we didn't get to see him kill those other Jedi to get to that point. So instead we got, like, sort of goofy robot wheezing dude um, in the movies, which is, like, doesn't well, so they, they do explain why he's wheezing in the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gets his chest crushed by uh, psychic, uh, Jedi powers. It's a very quick, sudden thing. It's like, oh, oh okay, I guess, it's, I guess that's why he's coughing later? I don't yeah, know. That makes sense. But yeah. it's, like, it's a very, like, honestly, kind of maybe a weaker part of the cartoon series, which leads me to believe that it's entirely George Lucas's fault. <laughs> like, yeah, but the guy, he's got to be coughing. He's coughing later on as he got his chest crushed by Mace Windu. Oh, well, we didn't put that in, George. We got to put that in, I guess, or Mace Windu crushes his chest. You have to push him where he does that. And so it happens very suddenly. Like, that's the trouble, is like, because it's not part of the same narrative. Like, I do, I do like the idea of it, like, having that kind of explanation. And, but it would be way more impactful if that was, like, in the movie, whereas, like, Mace Windu just casually fucking crushes his chest and walks away, and then the next scene he's fucking wheezing from it because it's like, yeah, okay, you killed a bunch of Jedi, you're really good at this like fucking creepy ass style, but you faced like one of the like real members and he just casually fucking crushed your chest. Cool, let's carry on. Yeah, like he's just like, yeah, ah, fuck you, bye. <laughs> but that's basically, I think, like why he's doing his unorthodox hunting style is he can't really go toe to toe with a real yeah. Jedi. That was my problem with the the prequel movies is that they really just didn't show Jedi as being strong in a way that made sense to me. Like, yeah, some of the flippy flippy fights can be vaguely cool, but most of it ended up just being goofy as shit, which. Ah, there's so much potential. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I think Star Wars is best though when it, it actually aren't any Jedi's. It's not Clone Wars. I, as much as I love uh, Clone Wars, it's like a completely different flavor of Star Wars. Yeah. And it only works in that format. In any other format, I'm frankly not very interested in it. And I'd rather get back to the basics, get to the puppets, get to the miniatures, get to the grittiness, and now apparently the anti-fascism. Yeah, well, I mean, that is also, that has been a long-running part of, like, Star Wars is anti-fascism. And it kind of took a turn away from that to a degree. Like, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like George in the prequels had some idea. He had his ideas about, like, how democracy dies and, and like, how you get people embroiled in a war and still a dictatorship. Like, it's very, like, Iraq War kind of vibes. Like, yeah. clearly George had something to say about this. He just didn't do a very good job of saying it. Yeah. I like that. That is the thing that, like, stuck with me so for so long because that's where I have this feel that it's, there's so much potential in Star Wars. And it's great to see things like Andor show some of that potential. Like, really just show off what that universe can be. Because I, I think it's, it's great. And honestly, most of Star Wars doesn't know how to do Star Wars right. <laughs> Point of the sequel trilogy because I actually didn't see it. I watched Last Jedi and I don't remember it at all, and I didn't watch the other two. Well, this is the problem: is the the sequel trilogy is mostly just nostalgia bait. Yeah. Like, and I enjoyed the first of the sequel trilogy in some ways. Yeah, I heard. I heard was it Force Rises? Uh, Force Awakens. Force Awakens. Yeah, yeah, I heard that's good. Um, it's it's sort of good. I have some pretty major critiques around it, mostly to do with the fact that like the most creative thing they could think of is the big bad. It was like, well, I guess there's a pocket of different stormtroopers that are more advanced somehow, and um, they're even worse than the previous stormtroopers because they kidnap kids and indoctrinate them, and oh, they have a Death Star 2.0, and it just blew up two planets because two it's so planets. much more powerful. It's like <laughs> the Death Star was supposed to be this massive, like, fucking ridiculous endeavor of the Empire as a symbol of ultimate control, and then the sequel movies are like, uh, we see your ultimate symbol of control. We're gonna make it bigger and better and worse. The Star Wars already did this. There was that terrible expanded universe novel where there was like the Sun Killer or something, like blow up a whole solar system. Yeah. Was like, and it was like they also had like the Star Wars Zerg Borg yeah. made it or something like that. I never read this, but I remember seeing stuff I about read it. Some of the novels in that set around the like Zerg Borg thing. Uh, there were elements that I quite liked. I love the idea of like organic technology, organic spaceships that you just sort of grow. That's a pretty cool idea, and I think mm. more more sci-fi should play in that space in a way that isn't just oh look it's the Zerg again. Um, which those books had more meat to them. Like it wasn't just oh it's the Zerg again, um, or the Tyranids, which were just different Zerg um, slash vice versa. I think Tyranids came first, but probably. Um, I mean, they're all ripping off alien. Exactly. Like this is this is kind of the thing. Is it's just like various flavors of like organic organism that's designed to eat everything. It's like well organic technology is actually really interesting. Can you imagine if we had like perfect genetic engineering? It's like well what what do we need? Oh we need a spaceship. Cool. We're just gonna grow one. Yeah. That's cool as hell. Like oh we need a gun. We're just gonna grow an organic gun. Like, a, like a, <laughs> you're a farmer and you get your gun bush. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that's a that's a really interesting a idea. Spaceship farm. And like like, like animals you have to like raise up and like it starts out little it's like a little horse and you're like oh, alright we're gonna break you in and teach you how to be a spaceship and well like I, I seem to remember the book that I was reading in that series has a thing where they end up like capturing a ship and they effectively like befriend it um, something like that they end up basically just like working with it because it's an organic being so you have to have a connection and a relationship with it in order to work with it and it's like such an interesting idea or look at technology because we often see technology as being this kind of like inorganic thing that we use but like 
if we look at the relationship that we have with our phones, it's a lot more symbiotic than one might perhaps think of. But we think about it as just being this chunk of technology that we just, we're using. Well, technology is separate from the ecosystem, which it somewhat is, but it's made by us, so it's kind of a modification of our, our environment and our ecosystem. And what if that modification was more integrated with it, whereas another yeah. life form within the ecosystem, it's like a symbiosis of all these organisms. They're kind of one species, but they're many species. Yeah. And like our cells are originally made up of a collection of microorganisms that started working together and living together until eventually they became inseparable yeah. and are functionally all one organism. Like, you know, uh, it could be like multiple species that all ended up working together to the point where they became integrated with one another. That is honestly an avenue of sci-fi that I find really fascinating because I think that's also to a degree where we're going with technology. Like we are integrating technology and like for most of our history we integrated species like dogs and cows and chickens and horses etc into our existence as a civilization. They became evolutionary tools to us that helped both us and them in ways. Unfortunately modern modern farming techniques and so forth and I'm not gonna say like these were great back in the day but like you know modern farming techniques treat animals like crap. They treat them like a resource and not as living beings but like you know we we raised them up to the point that they're at. We like we actually evolved them to where they fit with us in a symbiotic relationship, and I think that's really cool. And I think more sci-fi should explore those kinds of spaces. Did Star Wars do a particularly interesting job of it in those novels? There was definitely some interesting moments. I don't think they did the best job, but I think they did an interesting job. You think it was weighed down by being Star Wars? Like maybe a different novel would be the better way to explore that. Interestingly enough, I'm not sure. I think sometimes, and this is why I'm not necessarily opposed to like big kind of universes for people to play in, is that like. Having all of that set dressing, having all of this pre-recognized lore, all of this space within which to play, meant that they could focus more on, I think they're called the Yuzan Vung or something like that, um, more on this other species and this conflict, because you don't have to do as much of the backdrop painting, so to speak. Well, it's something I think really worked well with Andor, where it was, you know, barely Star Wars for most of it, but because it was Star Wars, you already had a ready-made evil empire right there, and so you'd be like, oh yeah, you know, bad guys, the bad empire, you know, bad stuff, yeah, them. You know, stormtroopers doing bad stuff. We already know. We don't need to set up. It's like using the Nazis as your bad guy. Yeah. It's like, we already have this set up. We don't need to establish anything. And now go. Yeah. And it didn't get bogged down in that. It wasn't obsessed with showing little nods to the movies or, or every little Star Wars reference they could. That That is the thing that I think drives me the most mad about so many of the other pieces of Star Wars media is they're bogged down in nostalgia for other things that came before. It's like, you know, the Obi-Wan series, I found painful and insufferable the three episodes I watched because it was just bogged down by constant nostalgia. The fucking, like, the new sequel movies... Just nostalgia. Like, who's the big bad at the end of it? It's fucking Darth Sidious again, because of course it is. Because the Emperor is back, I guess. Because apparently new characters aren't allowed to exist in this universe. Like, well, their problem there is they need a catharsis. They need to bring us up to a higher point than the previous trilogy already brought us to. But it being a trilogy, it's got this beats, right? And it's the sort of starting point, the low point, and then the high point at the end that we finish with, right? And we already did that. How do we do it again? We need a new big cheeseburger to bite into. And that, that Snoke or whatever, the Grand Inquisitor Snopes.com, who they killed off in the second movie, I think. Like, yeah. that wasn't doing it. No, that's, sorry, that's not as good as an evil wizard that runs everything. Like, and this already was an evil wizard, but he was a worse evil wizard. And it's like, oh, okay, well, they already did a giant planet killing space uh, station. We need something that or better. Like, you've already used it up. Yeah. You, you used up, uh, I'm thinking like, you know, if you overuse swear words, they sort of lose all meaning. If you yeah. open with your super secret kung fu technique, now you don't have an ace in the hole against your enemy. They already saw the best thing you've got. So we've already blew your load. They jumped the sharp. And and now, uh, what do you do or if you do it again, I guess? Well, this is why I hate spectacle creep, because it's like this idea that if you've done something big, the next time you do something in that set, you have to do it even bigger. It's like, no, no, you don't. Like, make me a Star Wars. Like, Andor is a great example. Here's just a character from Rogue One. Like, one character that got there that we just went into their backstory. Like, we just dove right in there. And there's a really compelling and interesting story there, because the galaxy of Star Wars is filled with interesting stories. Like, there's so much room for characters to do interesting and new things that doesn't need to be like, hey, look at the stuff that came before. Hey, look, look at that. And then the moment you make a comparison, you're left going like, well, now we gotta do something as big or bigger. And then you, you don't. Just make a story about a dude. Like, Mandalorian is doing pretty well as well, because it's just a dude.
it's just a dude in Star Wars, and like, yeah, he's doing some spectacular stuff, but like, yeah. And I, part of the reason that I like Andor so much is it's just like, you can see this dude is just a dude. He's just a guy. There's very little, like, superhuman, like, there's, like, sometimes people do things where it's a little bit like, really, could that old man really do that? Or is this person really good at, like, shooting or whatever? But, like, for the most part, it's like, yeah, it seems kind of believable. This isn't, like, an impossible feat for a person to do. Yeah, and, like, I, I think that's a really, that's a far more compelling space to set a story. You know, like, you don't always have to do the biggest, baddest thing, and you don't always have to do bigger than the previous installment. It's often way more interesting to do something more character and story-driven. But if all you have is a big spectacle burger, and it's all about the big spectacle, if you give people the same spectacle over enough times, as you say, they get bored of it. It loses its impact, so you have to make a spectacle bigger the next time. You know, if the Star Wars trilogies, the three of them that exist, yeah. were made in, like, a, the right order, I guess. They're made in, like, chronological order, shall we say. Um, you could have it still follow the same structure of the original trilogy of, like, you got your starting point with a nice adventure to set us up, you got the sort of low point with the darkest elements of the story coming through, and then we end on the high note of a great climax, right? Yeah. And you could have, oh, the first trilogy is a bit of this entry point adventure that's got... Uh, you know, we're, we're just going to go through the strokes of what this this is, and it can have a great spectacle in it. Um, but then it goes down in future. Oh, the future's worse because the Jedi have fallen, and the, the universe has gotten darker, and the Force isn't as strong anymore. And so we're living in a diminished world that is lower stakes seemingly than the previous one because the previous one was during the apex. Yeah. And then the final one is what you finish it all off with, and then you get to have the biggest spectacle yet because it's the climax of everything coming together. Yeah. And you know that could work, and then maybe you could sort of say that is what they did, sort of, but they didn't do it in a very good order, so it's all a big mess and it doesn't work very well. Yeah, it also just, it, like, the third one just feels like it's trying, the third, third trilogy just feels like it's trying to live through the glory of the previous iterations. It's trying to nitpick, like, trying to pick out the best parts and put them up on a display. And it, it loses most of its substance as a result. Like, I really liked the second of the new trilogy compared to the others, but it has some, like, universe-breaking stuff in it that really bothers me. I think I've spoken about that before. I'm just like, I don't know, it really just, it, it felt like this whole, kind of a waste of time. Honestly. Isn't it kind of, everyone just kind of ends up where they started? A little bit, like yeah. a pointless movie? And they kill off some of the main cast. Like, from the previous movies. It's like, okay, well, cool, I guess. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is, I, is Palpatine fucking dead finally? Do we know? Who knows? Maybe he'll pitch up in the next set. Oh, we're gonna need a new villain somehow. Yeah. Just desert Borg. That's, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, I could see an interesting story about just, like, some fucking, um, I don't know, some troops of the, the new, like, New Republic trying to tidy up some of the corners of the galaxy. Like, just dealing with, like, okay, well, we've got a petty dictator in these, like, small systems. Now we got to negotiate some shit, figure out how to, like, clear the situation up and clear them out. Like, yeah, the stakes aren't planet-destroying, like, fucking super weapons. Instead, it's just, like, well, we're making some people's lives better. But you can tell a compelling story about that. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't need to be as big as the previous ones. Just, like, do something new and interesting. Cool. It's like this sort of morally complex situation of, like, okay, so we've gotten rid of the evil empire and the, the dictatorship that ran everything. How do we restore order without ourselves becoming a dictatorship? Yeah, like, that's a pretty fucking important question to be asking. That they just never really touch on. No, they blew up the Death Star and went yub-yub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've had a little celebration. There's fireworks. Uh, job done, I guess. Yeah, I, um, I mean, like, you know, it, it, getting back to it, it's just Star Wars, which is just a goofy thing for kids that, like, really too many people have taken too seriously. But... I don't know, There's, it's become this gigantic thing, so I guess we have to take it seriously. It, it has more money than God, it's basically the new religion. It's uh, <laughs> the thing that everybody talks about, all anybody talks about is what the shows are that they watch, apparently. I mean, yeah, it is cultural expression, I guess. Just like, you know, I'm always, I, I started this by saying, kind of how, like, wary I am of doing media discussion, because it just feels like that's all anybody does. It's the hegemony now of, of uh, TV and movies is all anybody really has to look forward to. It's the only point of, like, shared connection you have with anybody else. Most people don't have time or energy to be doing creative endeavors of their own, so all yeah. you can really do is vicariously enjoy other people's creative endeavors. And uh, it kind of, I think, flattens out experience and expression and makes people's lives a little more hollow because you're just watching somebody else do things instead of doing things yourself. And, of course, you're just, when you talk about these things, you're reinforcing that, and really you're just giving free advertising to the companies that make them. And I've probably ranted about this before, but platforms like YouTube and everywhere else, like, they're just populated primarily with content talking about other content, which doesn't sit well with me, and it certainly is convenient for the companies that own these properties. That, oh, we're only going to show your stuff if you prove that you can make us money by doing advertising for us, essentially. And uh, I think that's messed up and weird, but... 
if we're going to be talking about media taking Star Wars too seriously, uh, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting exercise once in a while to see something that goes in depth into something that previously did not have depth, to really yeah. explore something. It's not a useless exercise. It's, it's neat sometimes. Well, I think this is a, a difficulty that, you know, I, I, I very much agree with the perspective that, um, you know, media, these, we're constantly making discussion pieces about these different pieces of media. We're doing, like, that's how we interact with each other directly. I, I feel like all of that is incredibly negative, but it doesn't mean that great things can't come out of that system. And it feels like, you know, and, and there, there are great or interesting or useful things that can come out of a system like that. And it's, you know, I, I, I struggle with, um, struggle with perspectives that are like anything under capitalism is always going to suck. Because it's like, no, that's not really what happens. This is like the truth is that there's a lot that comes out of capitalism that can be pretty cool to our day-to-day lives. It can be really enjoyable or really interesting or things like that. But it doesn't take away the harm that the system does. And I will say that most of the bad things about things are directly because of capitalism and those things would be better if capitalism wasn't affecting them. Agreed. And like, this is one of those things for me with Star Wars and like why I brought up SCP earlier and things like that. It's like, I think community collaboration over projects of picking the best that comes out, the best that bubbles up to the surface is a far better method. And like, Andor is one of these things that feels like it bubbled to the surface in the cauldron of like people working on this. And part of the reason that it works is because it seems like the Disney execs had given up on trying to figure out how to make money out of Star Wars because everything they were trying wasn't working super well. Which is like, that's why Star Wars was good in the first place. George Lucas said as much. It was like, uh, they took a chance on a kid. Yeah. And let him make something. And yeah, sure, he didn't, yeah, nobody was just, you know, it wasn't everybody just saying yes to every single thing, but it was, they took a chance, they gambled on somebody with a vision and let them enact that vision. Yeah. And this, that's kind of what happened here. They just let somebody do their thing and they ended up doing something very good with it. Yeah. And like, I think that's where our, our fear about it comes is like the moment the people that do the accounting figure out that this is working, are they going to step in and ruin it? Yeah. They're going to make more money from it. Capitalism fucking ruins everything is so often how it feels. Whenever your boss comes up and starts helping you do your job better, it never helps you do your job better. Yeah, like being micromanaged, being told what works and what doesn't by somebody who's actually not familiar with how your job functions isn't helpful. Having the accounting department pitch up when you're working in the code side and saying, actually, we want you to ignore doing the useful thing that you're working on and instead focus on this other thing that we can monetize. Has it ever really gone well? Certainly every job I worked at, it was like, oh, our build platform sucks. It takes like an hour to build a fucking project just to test a tiny change. We should fix this. No, there's no money in fixing the build platform sorry so you gotta just keep working on new features that make this problem worse like in the time that i was working at one company like in the period of a year it went from a 40 minute build to an hour-long build because more stuff got added and it just got worse oh. and like i was working on trying to fix the problem in the background i had support until covid hit and then they were like mm, we can't really justify it because you're not making money bye oh jeez. like that's not helping anyone and i was like especially when you work in the financial sector like i was working for banks those places are duh yeah, they don't need any help like yeah, but that, that's the thing. It's like that, that sort of like capitalist urge to make money off every aspect of it ruins so many things. But it is possible to still get good things out of it. And it's like, you know, I think it's worth acknowledging that, but also just with the caveat that like it's also what ruins everything. Can I talk about one other star thing that I like del- delving too deeply into and appreciate an effort? Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like uh, A Fox in Space. Which is this like fan animation of like Star Fox, okay. the, the Nintendo game series? Did you ever play Star Fox? No, I didn't have much access to Nintendo when I was growing up. I only played Star Fox 64, which is you know the second one is probably the best one overall, uh, from what I've heard. I, I saw a little bit of like was it Star Fox Adventure, which is like was going to be a completely unrelated furry game, and then they decided there's no money in that, and they made it into a Star Fox game, and it's like Star Fox on like an away mission, like in Star Trek, and they go to like some like primitive planet that's populated by dinosaurs, and yeah. it uh, might have affected my uh, ideas for certain things I like I'm working on. Not saying <laughs> it really affected it, but just this idea of dinosaurs in space that seed was planted a long time ago, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, uh, this a fox in space is like it's just like there's two episodes. The first one was fifteen minutes. The second one was forty minutes. Oh wow! And it's just like taking 
furries in space too seriously, but, but like politically. Like the second one in particular is all about like the, the villain of the game series like becoming like a dictator and like they're like oh yeah they're not even having the elections on Venom anymore. They're just gonna select the leader by the the, the panel or whatever. Like oh, wow. is this something that it's just like this intrigue of like like the main character James McCloud, who's Star Fox's dad, who does appear in the games, but he's like dead kind of really? thing. Like he's like only in flashbacks and stuff, or whatever. He's like the main character of the second episode, and it's like this sort of interplanetary espionage that he gets embroiled in, and I think he's like gets betrayed by like multiple parties and like that sounds wild as hell. It's freaking Star Fox. <laughs> like, it's like the Andor of Star Fox kind of thing, where like they're doing too deep of a political dive into this goofy space opera. I mean, by the sounds of it, did they not do a good job with it? Or did no, they, do... they did a great job with it. I love it. Oh, it's just one of those things that I like, not because it's bad. I, I kind of love that. I, I mean, sometimes, so it's a, it's a sentiment that I've seen on like, Tumblr and the like, but like, sometimes fans have a better idea of the characters in the universe than the original creators. I will say this. I don't think Nintendo are very good writers. I would thoroughly agree. They just, they, that's not what they do. They make novel video games for their weird platforms. Yeah. And they keep making the same video game again and again also, but they usually do some weird new thing with it. But like their stories, their stories are very meh. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I have seen better fan creations that have become games as a result of people's love of particular Nintendo games that have way more innovation and interest than like the originals. Um, yeah, I know like a lot of people really liked Metroid Dread or whatever. I found it painful to try and play. Um, but like there are so many good 2D Metroidvanias that have been created in in the intervening time between the last good Metroid and Metroid Dread that, quite frankly, are way better. It's like, you know, how a piece of art evolves from the first sketch? Yeah. Metroid and Super Metroid were like the first drawings of this concept, and it's been iterated on countless times now by different artists. And they've got it down to a science. I'm not, gonna, I'm not knocking Metroid or Super Metroid. They're great games, but like, mm. they've expanded on that quite a bit. And yeah. they've got it down to the point where like Nintendo doesn't have a monopoly on it. Not even slightly. In fact, I don't think Nintendo knows how to make the best version of any of their franchises. No, it's like, oh, maybe the original people attached to some of these things aren't around anymore. I don't know who made Metroid, but... Well, I mean, the video games industry is so full of like people being pushed to make sequels to games way too quickly when they didn't have good ideas because they wanted to. The company and, and publisher just wanted to cash in on it. Mm. It's like, oh, it's really popular. We gotta make a sequel. Let's just throw it fucking out there, and it's gonna be done by this date. And like, you know, it's a creative process. You can't necessarily just roll it with, okay, it's gonna be done by this date. Yeah, you need some degree of like pressure for a lot of people, but not like that. Not just go make another one. I think that's that's what made Star Fox 64 work well. It was like basically the same game again. I think as Star Fox Super Nintendo Star Fox. I never played Super Nintendo Star Fox, so I don't know for sure. But they seem like basically the same game, but it's just done again in 3D with okay. a more powerful system that can actually handle it. Yeah. So it worked really well. But the thing is, original Star Fox on Super Nintendo was like really weird graphics and like the advertising. I think maybe for both games, but especially the box art and advertising for the um, Super Nintendo one was like puppets and like kind of uncanny valley realistic looking anthropomorphic animals. Like, and it looks like it's from the 80s. Like it's a sort of 80s aesthetic of like old TV shows and, and cartoons. Um, uh, did you ever see, yeah, you wouldn't have, but did you ever see the raccoons? No. I'm trying to think of another cartoon series from this era. Um, the raccoons is like, it's a Canadian show, mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised you didn't see it. I, think it, it. I saw on the first episode, it zooms in on the Rockies. It canonically takes place, I'm pretty sure, in BC. Oh, wow. uh, it's like these raccoons live in a forest, and they have a newspaper that like does environmental activism against the local industrialist. <laughs> and uh, Cyril Sneer is the name of him, and like he's always polluting and stuff, and they got to stop him kind of thing with their journalism. And it's great. I love the, the raccoons. It has a very particular animation style that like somehow a fox in space has like really managed to accomplish. Like, and I'm pretty sure a fox in space is actually doing a lot of stuff that normally I don't like. Like, mm-hmm. they're doing 3D. They're doing cell shading. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like rotoscopes too, I think. Like, it's all these different things, but he's making it work. Whoever's making it is, is made it look like a 1980s cartoon of, like, furries. Like, a well, very particular genre thing. That's that's really awesome. It's, like, part of the reason that I, I was recommending Puss in Boots earlier is that, like, it feels like a shift in the dynamic around 3D animation to make it much more artistic and less boilerplate. Because for, for a while, like, so much 3D stuff has just felt very, like, it's all smooth surfaces and, yeah, and they, weird, uncanny valley bullshit. And now, like, yeah, we can get sort of realistic, but you know what's way more interesting than sort of realistic that's deep in the uncanny valley? Artistically creative. Like, seeing textures that are, like 
clearly hand done with like digital art styluses, like that kind of thing, where it's like it's hand drawn. It's not just okay, we filled it in this way and we very carefully tried to like meticulously make it look as close to the real thing. It's like no, we went obviously hand drawn with this in a way that is stunning and visually beautiful. Like there's ways now to make 3D animation so beautiful, like a work of art. I blame Spider Verse. I think Spider Verse really kicked it off. Spider Verse is a great example of exactly that kind of thing, just like really making it artistic, giving it its own unique style and feel, rather than it just looking like another Pixar. And they really did a good job of uh, integrating 2D elements and making it look really graphical. Yeah. And that's what I think like Fox and Space. It doesn't have the same. It's not like Spider Verse in, the, in that regard, except that they really did a good job of making it look drawn. It looks like uh, a cartoon rather than a cel-shaded 3D model. And, and there's parts that look like obvious 3D models, but that also works because it's Star Fox, so it kind of mm -hmm. looks like a Nintendo 64 game. Like, there's something about the textures and the colors that even though it looks like sometimes a little Photoshop-y, it looks a little... Like, it's a weird blending of, like, 3D and 2D and, like, sort of realistic and cartoonish that makes it look like an 80s cartoon, actually. It looks like a legit weird furry show from the 80s. It looks like the show that Star Fox was based on, and then they made the game on it. And, and like, there's only two episodes of it, but, like... Each, like, even the first episode just, like, pretends it's an ongoing show. Like, Star Wars just opens mm -hmm. up in the middle of this, you know, episode six or whatever. Episode four yeah. is, the, is the, the opening of the first Star Wars movie ever made, right? And it's the same kind of thing. It's like, previously on Star Fox. But, like, yeah. you know, just, like, whatever. And, and, like, all of them are like that. It's just in a larger story. It's like, oh, shit, I guess the show's been going on for a long time. Like, you kind of get that vibe. And you're catching it on TV randomly. Yeah. And I, I enjoy that kind of thing. It's, it's fun. I, I, that's the thing is I love that kind of stuff. I love that kind of thing that has a, that creativity and willingness to be, I don't know, more expressive and less whatever is popular, you know? And, like, I really like the idea of things just being part of a bigger, broader narrative. Um, yeah, like, I don't know, it always makes, makes me happy. It's like my some of my favorite novels being the Discworld novels, just because there's like 40-something books all set in the same universe. And seeing their stories and can interconnect and like you can pick the pieces up and like, you know, okay, you don't get that sort of introduction of like a previously on, but I, I like that idea of it's like you're building a universe in which stuff is still constantly happening. You're just telling a tiny story in it. Like, that's, that's cool. I, yeah. I like that kind of thing. That's a neat way to do fiction, is it? Yeah. It's, uh... You get to have the best of both worlds. The, the big, expansive universe with lots of lore that can endlessly be explored, as well as, like, a chance to tell smaller, more personal stories that are sort of made more real by this rather fleshed-out world, at least broad strokes of a, a real world that you've got going on. Yeah. So, I don't know, I mean, we've we talked for a, a long time about yeah. Andor and many other things. Is there any final thoughts you think you have on Andor? Um, I... I... I think we covered a lot of like the stuff. It's, it's hard to even remember exactly what all we said. Uh, this is a real long episode. I think we covered all the main like you know themes maybe all of the main set pieces for the most part. We didn't talk a lot about the mission they did. Yeah. But, like we did some spoilers, but try not to spoil it too much. It's, it's like mm. we said worth watching. Yeah. But like, uh, there's a cool little model they built. Let's give a special recommendation to the model. That wood model is so cool. It's, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's diegetically a model. Like it's not yeah. a miniature meant to be a, a real life building. It's a model that they make in the show, and I love it. It's it's fun. And there's a fun robot. There's a great droid. Didn't talk about the nice droid. He's a cute yeah. little little dog. There's so many like practical effects that they put into that droid. That's yeah. just a uh, real delight. It makes BB-8 look like shit. <laughs> BB-8 was such a weird droid to see. Like, it doesn't match like any of the other aesthetics of the Star Wars universe in so many ways. It's sort of a strange... I see why they went with it, but it, yeah, it didn't quite fit, I felt. I don't know. Yeah. I, I like this guy. I know this droid's name. It's something. I don't know anybody's name, frankly. I never, I never remember people's names in shows. I, I struggle with people's names in general. Yeah, but I don't remember exactly what his, his name, Andor, what his name is. There's Andor, and Biggs, and... Oh, there's Mon Mothma. Like, yeah. I know her from original Star Wars. Yeah. And she's, like, the only character, I think, that's from the original Star Wars. And there's, like, different actress, of course, because that was, like, 50 yeah. years ago or whatever, but... I, I think she did an excellent job portraying the character in a way that felt very, like... That matched the energy of the first... Her first appearance in the original movies. How do you um, feel about all that liberal Senate stuff, the rich people part? Um, interestingly reminiscent of a lot of conversations I had growing up. Mm. I'll put it like that. Um, I, I think it... It is this thing of, like, I know there are people that are in that sort of echelon that really do mean well and want to make things better, but they don't always know how, and they're not always in touch with what's going on. And I felt like her characterization was really well portrayed in that sort of, like, coming to understand that, like, she was doing her best to do her best, effectively. She was trying to make a difference in a positive way, and she was blocked in her own way, and she was stuck in this kind of, like, hell in her own way. And I think, like, you know, capitalism, these kinds of systems, that kind of fascist dictatorship alienates people like that just as much as it alienates people at the bottom. 
but in extremely different ways. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, she's living this life of privilege, but it also sucks. She's spying on constantly. She's like afraid to do all sorts of things. She's trying to like make the world better, but she's stopped at every turn. She's living through these living nightmare fucking um, dinner parties with people that fucking hate her, um, that spend the rest of their day just trying to like tear down everything she's trying to build. Like, it, that's a really interesting like characterization. And I think like, you know, um, there's all the tension with her family of like her husband is like, I'm going along with it. It's fine. Why is it a killjoy? Why do you gotta be so serious all the time? Why don't we just have fun and make money? And then the daughter being like, yeah, dad lets me do whatever I want. Why are you such a killjoy, mom? Like, I I mean, this is the thing is like I had friends and family that were like that. I had friends and family that I've had discussions with where it's like they're happy with the system as it is. Like, like, why are you being so political? Yeah. Like, I, I, oh God, I had so many discussions that would end with somebody going like, well, let's agree to disagree. And it was like, that has become like a statement that makes me immediately want to punch somebody in the nose. It's like, well, yeah, sometimes you can agree to disagree. I don't know if you can do that about like human beings' lives. Yeah. Let's, let's agree to disagree around like pineapple on pizza, for instance. Like, yeah. fine. You know, that's fine. But like, I'm not going to have that response to slavery. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> but I had a lot of those kinds of conversations because a lot of people I grew up with were closer to that sort of echelon within South African society. Anyway, they were closer to that kind of space. And I wasn't like, you know, at the top of the top, but I was, you know, wealthy enough to be in the top 1% of the country. Mm. Like, yeah, I mean, it's not, that's just it. It's not great for anybody. These systems aren't actually good. I think yeah. even for the billionaires, I don't think they're happy. No, I think a lot of them aren't. You know, Elon Musk is desperately, desperately, desperately trying to be funny. He's trying to be relatable. He's trying to be someone that people can like. And the truth is that he's so out of touch, he's failing spectacularly. I mean, I relate to that. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, sometimes you get driven into one thing or another in life, and then you're out of touch with other people. Like, I'm not going to say I relate to an asshole like Elon Musk who's super rich, but if someone lives a very insular life and I'm focused on my own things, but at the same time my success is dependent on other people paying attention to me, it's a tough thing to navigate. It's like you yeah. get stuck in your own world, and you don't even have the tools you need to communicate what you need to communicate to people. And in his yeah. case, what he's trying to communicate is hogwash, but... Yeah, you know, he's trying to reach out and be friendly and all of that, and it's like, I can have a fair degree of pity for the man, even if I think he's a raging fucking narcissistic imbecile, but, like, you know, I can have some pity for being that alienated, being that desperate for that kind of attention, because, like, yeah, you know, it's no wonder, like... And, you know, the amount of stress that probably comes with feeling like you have to manage a whole empire, even though uh, probably if these people, like, delegated it to others, it would probably work better and they'd be less stressed out. Well, I mean, this is a whole interesting, like, subtopic that we could delve into is, like, you know, he's, he's propped up on various lies in order to get all this money from investors and, um, and from governments and what have you. So he has to keep lying. He has to keep playing this, like, grifting game because if he drops it for a split second, he's fucked. Yeah. Like, there goes his company, there goes his career, there goes everything. You know, and, like, yeah, he'll have a golden fucking parachute to land out of that, and so I don't have a great deal of sympathy, but it's no wonder that he keeps playing at that well, shit. Well, he also needs to hold on to all that power. Like, that's that's what it is for these people. Like, they, that's what they care about. They have to hold on to all of it. It's not en- enough for them to have just enough, because it's never enough. Yeah. They need more and more. And that's not a great way to live. No. I, like, it hurts everyone involved. It hurts the people that you're taking the power away from, and it hurts the people that get the power, even if it's not always in ways that materially feel the same. It's still... Hurts them. Well, think of, like, we all do all this bitching about social media and stuff like that. It's like, that's a very, like, privileged problem anyways. Lots of people don't have a social media account. They don't have a phone, they don't have a computer. They're living in the garbage that we ship over to their country. Yeah. Like, that's the state for a lot of people. To be worried about AI taking your cushy uh, artist job is a bit of a first world problem, but it doesn't mean that just because you're trapped in that system higher up in the chain doesn't mean you're not still trapped. Yep. That's, I mean, that is why I think, like, both of us have this perspective around the system needs to change. And, like, yeah, it would, in effect, benefit us being higher up in the echelon, but more, more like, importantly in some ways, it would help everybody else. Everybody that's stuck fucking sifting through the shit to make our lives possible. And, honestly, it would help a lot of people that are way higher up in the system than we are. The only people that would possibly suffer are the people right at the fucking top, the, like, 0.1% of the population. And, you know, if you don't count them being executed for crimes against humanity, what punishment are they really suffering? Just not being as powerful? 
Yeah, like, like they don't get to have their super fucking yachts at the expense of millions of other people. They don't get to uh, what eat gold fucking covered steaks I'd or be, take trips to space. Like I'd be fine with there being like rich people. I'd be okay with there being v- very rich people if everybody had enough. Yeah, that's entirely it. You want to be rich? Okay, sure, we can maybe make that work. But if everybody's got enough, everybody can live a nice, decent life and have a fulfilling life. Yeah, then there you go, right? Yeah, like cover fucking food, shelter, medical expenses, and at least some fucking entertainment for everyone on the planet. We've got enough resources to do it. Why aren't we? Because some rich heads want to, I don't know, jack off of their tower of money. They get off on holding other people down. It's like holding people down for its own sake. Yeah. Which, uh, you gotta fight against. You gotta fight against it by any cost. And, and the best way to do it is to watch a TV show about it. <laughs> yep, that's, that's, that's exactly what you need to do. Just, just watch a TV show. That'll fix things. Right? But, but we talk about the value of the show and, and, and media that discusses these things. But at the end of the day, of course, Disney's not your friend. The, the fact that this is in any way subversive is probably, like, most likely not because they want it to be or because they're trying to sell you something that is, like, the aesthetic of subversion. But I think there's enough tidbits in there, enough real artistic value to, to say that it, it has something to contribute to it. It, it can at least spark the embers of rebellion in your soul, get you thinking about how to resist, why to resist, uh, what is it in your life that isn't serving you and maybe how does it serve other people yeah taking that taking those moments to consider consider what you're doing consider how you're doing it and at least to not burn yourself out just because your boss or the system or the manager says to do so like it's just not worth it well i guess for that we should probably sign out eh yeah i think so well broadcasting to you from the chipmunk dimension this is being obsessive by nature and uh april fools yeah have a good april fools people Obsessive by Nature is made possible by our supporters on Patreon. You can sign up at patreon.com slash lifeofbria for as little as $2 Canadian a month, and you can support the pod, see what we're up to, and join the Discord to hang out with me, Bria, all the time, when I'm there. (laughs) 